Oh, my God. 
minutes after 6 a.m. Good morning, everybody. My name is Nachum Siegel. Welcome to our nine days format Friday on this Erev Shabbos Chazon at JM in the AM. We are going to get to uh, what I owe uh, this audience, which is uh, Rabbi Beryl Wine's lecture on uh, Frankfurt. Uh, we are going to do that in its entirety coming up, please, God. Um, uh, but first, we're going to do a little bit of Shabbos a cappella on this Erev Shabbos Chazon. And then we will, um, and then we will uh, uh, hopefully have for you the uh, continuation of our presentation of our Barrel Wines Lecture Series, which is the centerpiece of our programming during our nine days format. Six minutes after six o'clock, this is JM in the AM. <laughs> You 
things up with some uh, Shabbos a cappella on this Erev Shabbos Chazon, and now we are set to uh, uh, get to our uh, lecture uh, for this uh, early morning part of our radio broadcast. Rabbi Beryl Wine and his uh, lecture series has been the centerpiece of our nine days format for many years, including this year, and uh, we are uh, in a series now entitled The Lost Communities, The Lost Communities, information about Rabbi Wine's Lectures, 1-800-499-WEIN. You can also go to the web, RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. And uh, this uh, specific lecture from the Lost Communities series is uh, about Frankfurt. Here it is at JM in the AM. Tonight's uh, lecture concerns itself with the history of one of the main Jewish communities in Europe, a community that flourished for uh, 750 years, the community of Frankfurt am Main. That's uh, the reason that the lecture is starting on time tonight. <laughs> now, there are old uh, traditions regarding Frankfurt am Main as to when it originally was founded as a Jewish community. The earliest record that we have as a Jewish community dates from the beginning of the 1200s, from the beginning of the 13th century. It's interesting that uh, when the Crusaders destroyed the other Jewish communities in uh, Germany, Spires and Worms and Mainz, there's no record of Frankfurt at all. And even uh, in uh, as late as 1241, there were only were 180 Jews that lived in Frankfurt. And we'll see that Frankfurt was a relatively small community till uh, well into the 17th century. The history of Frankfurt can really be summed up in uh, three words. Pogroms, rabbis, and disputes because the community had unfortunately great pogroms 
unfortunately very great rabbis, and again, unfortunately very bitter disputes within the Jewish community itself. And because of that, therefore, that's how it shaped the community. The first pogrom that we have noted dates back again to 1241, when uh, the 180 Jews who lived in Frankfurt all were massacred. And then there was no community again until 1246. Now, in the 1200s, uh, it was the time of the Holy Roman Empire. So there was an emperor, and then there was the archbishop who headed the church, the Catholic Church, and then there was the city of Frankfurt itself. All three levied taxes against the Jews, so that the Jews paid uh, an enormous amount of money, relatively speaking, and certainly relative to the rest of the population, for the privilege of living in Frankfurt. And the uh, competition between the Archbishop, between the Church, between the Emperor, and then between those two and the city, the municipality itself, as to who could extort the most money out of Jews, this was the story of the Jews in Frankfurt for a long period of time. The Jews in Frankfurt were mainly money lenders out of the population, and we'll see again in a moment that it was a very small population, but 60-70% of the Jews were engaged in money lending. And money lending was as follows, they borrowed money from noblemen, the Jews themselves did not have the capital, so today we call it banking, where the bank takes your money, and lends it out at a rate of interest and pays you a smaller rate of interest. And uh, the spread between the two rates of interest is basically the profit of the bank. Well, in the Middle Ages, in this period of time, the rates were usurious. They were tremendous. The cheapest rate was 34, 35%. Many times the rate was 50%, which meant that the loans could almost never be paid back because the interest payments were so large. And uh, because of that, there was always this tremendous risk of never recovering your capital. You would lend somebody a hundred marks or whatever and they'd never pay you back, but meanwhile they'd pay you four or five or six hundred marks in interest. So that was the basis of money lending. And because of that, you can imagine it was not a popular, the people who lent the money were not popular with the populace. The people who borrowed the money felt, and justifiably so, that they were being extorted. And this always put the Jews in a precarious position. Because many times, and especially it happened twice in Frankfurt in the 14th century, in the 1300s, the debtors who owed the money gathered together as a mob and went and burned down the Jewish houses, went and burned down the Jewish neighborhood, because that's how they got rid of the debt. And therefore, uh, the, uh, the business end of Jews in the Middle Ages was uh, terribly precarious. Because the Jews were forbidden in Germany to do anything else. They couldn't own real estate, 
couldn't trade in weapons and cloth and spices and silk. They weren't allowed to do any of that. And uh, they couldn't uh, be farmers because they couldn't own land. So there was really no way of making a living. And this uh, method, therefore, of money lending or of operating small stores or being a, a tradesman, a shoemaker, a carpenter, etc., were the only means available for a Jewish economy. And it's not surprising, therefore, that there was this tremendous push of French and German Jews eastward towards Poland, towards Slovakia, because in that period of time, the 1200s, the 1300s, the kings of Poland and Slovakia invited Jews to come and gave them rights and privileges, allowed them to be merchants, and because of that, the uh, Jews followed the route of opportunity and moved east so that Eastern Europe became the bastion of Jewish life in Europe, while Germany remained secondary because of the problems involved in making a living. In 1349, the Black Death, the bubonic plague, struck Europe. We cannot imagine uh, the effect that that plague had upon Europe. One-third of the population died. Entire cities were emptied. The forest came back and reclaimed all of the cleared land. It was a, uh, a time of uh, mass destruction. And what made it even worse is that there was no explanation. No one knew the idea of contagious diseases. Uh, no one ever heard of the bubonic plague. Uh, no one ever realized that it could be caught merely by breathing the air, uh, let alone being bitten by the flea. The Middle Ages generally was a time of enormous superstition. The people believed in all sorts of things, demons and dragons. The uh, whole industry which exists today in the entertainment world of all of these imaginary demons and dragons is really a throwback to the beliefs of the Middle Ages. Except today, so to speak, we think it's in fun. We think that it's not serious. But they took it that it was deadly serious. So there were a group of people who were called flagellants who somehow whipped themselves with a lash, with a whip, as a penance because they thought that there must be some tremendous sin that they committed in order to bring this plague on all of Europe. And they traveled from town to town whipping themselves. They also traveled from town to town creating pogroms. So in 1349, they came to Frankfurt. And first they extorted an enormous amount of money from the Jewish community. And then they set fire to the Jewish neighborhood. Now you had, all the buildings were built of wood and of thatched roofs. So that uh, we'll see that in Frankfurt the city burned down five, six, eight times completely. And the Jewish neighborhoods burned down more often than that. There were no Jews left in Frankfurt after the flagellants. 
But the Jews, for some reason, were always attracted to coming back to Frankfurt. So uh, ten years later we find that there were 17 Jewish families in Frankfurt. In fact, uh, in 1357 there were 12 families, in 1379 14 families, in 1450 only 12 families, and as late as 1473 there were only 17 families in Frankfurt. So the great Frankfurt for 200 years, you're talking about a number of Jews that doesn't equal one apartment building in Harnoff. But you also have to remember that in this period of time there weren't many people in Europe either. The whole Frankfurt was maybe only 350 families. And after the Black Death had ravaged Europe, there just weren't people. Now uh, the explosion in population in the world is really from, let's say, 1850 till today. In 1900, there were about 2 billion people in the world. Today, 100 years later, uh, there are 6.5 billion people in the world. So the population of the world tripled in one century. Never happened before to our knowledge. The reasons for that are many. Uh, greater nutrition, better health care, all sorts of reasons. But for whatever reason, we're talking about a very small Jewish population amongst the very small general population. There was a great cemetery in Frankfurt. It was the oldest cemetery, Jewish cemetery, that existed until uh, the Nazis. And it had the gravestones dating back uh, to the early 1200s. But the cemetery, and we'll talk about it when we come to Prague as well, the Jews had no right to expand the cemetery. And since the course of nature being what it is, and the fact that people are mortal, so naturally the cemetery filled up by the 1400s, it was full. And there was no other place to bury. So what an all Jewish cemeteries, all old Jewish cemeteries in Europe, what was done was that topsoil was poured on top of the existing graves. Tombstones were either removed or moved. And then you had a flat field which was higher. And again the process of burial began. In the Jewish cemetery in Frankfurt, just a very interesting point. In the Jewish cemetery in Frankfurt, uh, Jews, uh, there was a, there's a halacha, a mitzvah of Bechor uh, Behema, that the firstborn animal, uh, cow, etc., belongs to the coin, is Kodesh. And you're not allowed to use it. So what they would do is let it, uh, let it uh, pasture itself until it developed a blemish and then they would redeem it. So where did they put those animals? So they put them in the cemetery. Because it was the only place that they could. In the Jewish cemetery. And we have constant uh, lawsuits brought before the emperor by non-Jews claiming that they were damaged by these animals that the Jews had in the Jewish cemetery. Apparently uh, people snuck into the cemetery or etc. And they were gored by the animals or chased by them, etc. Uh, Jews are constantly being tried 
in the court of the emperor uh, for misuse of the cemetery. The uh, greatest community, there were two great communities, Nuremberg and Regensburg. Uh, the Rosh came from Regensburg. There were, Nuremberg was the center of Jewish life. Frankfurt was then, relatively speaking, a small town. However, in the 15th century, the Jews began to move to Frankfurt. And they moved out of Nuremberg and they moved out of Regensburg. And they moved to Frankfurt because there they thought that they would do better. And uh, by uh, the early 1600s, there already were 454 Jewish families in Frankfurt, which made it the largest Jewish community in Germany. But it was a community that was always under the threat of pogrom, and it was always under the threat of expulsion. So uh, it's almost uh, a masochist community. Why anybody would want to go back with such a history? In the history of hundreds of years of persecution, but the Jews in Frankfurt were uh, very stubborn. Very, very stubborn. And no matter what uh, occurred to them, uh, they always felt that somehow Frankfurt was their home, and that they would be allowed to live there, and they wanted to live there. Uh, and Frankfurt established the ghetto, apparently even earlier than the famous ghetto that was established in uh, Venice and Florence. Uh, and the uh, Jews lived in this neighborhood. Originally, the municipality of Frankfurt itself in the 15th and 16th centuries built the Jewish homes in the ghetto. But after a while, they decided that the Jews should build the homes themselves. All the Jewish homes were identified by a name. There were no addresses, but the house had a name. And the name was either after a fruit, apple, currant, berry. So you lived in the apple house. And therefore there are Jews called apple. And the Jews called all the names of the fruits. Or by color. So, uh, and the color was a shield, a flag that existed in front of the house. So that's how the name Rothschild, Rothschild, became uh, the name because of the fact that they were born and raised in the house, in the Red Shield house, or Schwarzschild, or other names like that, because the Jewish homes in the ghetto had either the names of fruits, or the names of colors which identified the houses. And as the population grew, you also had a, uh, a problem because of the fact that uh, there was no land allocated for further houses. So the Jews built up in a very dense population with houses with stories upon stories. So they had some that were as high as 11, 12 stories. But they had the foundations and the rest of the walls couldn't bear such weight. And therefore, uh, as part of the story of Frankfurt, there always were enormous collapses of houses. Because of the fact that the houses, uh, the, the skyscraper idea 
building with iron, with steel, etc. None of that was present. And so sometimes, uh, you know, he figured out that uh, if, the, if it could hold eight stories, then it could hold nine stories too. Why not? And then about three years later, they figured out why not. When the whole thing collapsed. As late as uh, 1608, the Jews uh, were still debarred from acquiring real estate. But it's interesting, the Jews went into the manuscript business. What do I mean the manuscript business? They were money lenders. They were money lenders, you have to have collateral. What collateral could they get? So part of the collateral that they always looked for were manuscripts. Old uh, manuscripts, copies, early books, editions, so that uh, Frankfurt became famous. The Jews were in the business of buying and selling manuscripts, and many times to the church, and many times the manuscripts that they bought were church manuscripts. So you have all sorts of questions in halacha then, are you allowed to deal in those things? Are you allowed to somehow uh, make transactions regarding uh, church manuscripts, etc.? They were forbidden to deal in spices, provisions, weapons, cloth, and wheat. So that pretty much uh, took them out of the market in anything. The Jews many times violated all of these laws, or they created uh, dummy companies in which they got German non-Jews to front for the company, and they were the ones that really did the business. So that the company's license, or the company's uh, name, was that of the non-Jew, but the uh, actual business was operated by uh, Jews, and this was very, very common in Frankfurt. And we find it also in the Shilas and Shuvas of the time, especially regarding uh, what if the non-Jew does business on Shabbat, what if the non-Jew does business on Yom Tov, what if the non-Jew uh, deals in uh, items that the Jew should not deal in, uh, does that somehow affect the status of the Jew as being the silent partner, as being the one uh, behind all of these? These are all uh, questions that appear in halacha, but they reflect what went on in the times. In the Thirty Years' War, in the middle of the 17th century, so this was the war between the Protestants and the Catholics, the war was uh, very, very bitter in Germany because Germany was the home of uh, Martin Luther, who was, uh, to a great extent, the leader of the Protestant movement. Uh, Luther began his career uh, as a Catholic priest, as a monk, and then he rebelled against the church, against the excesses of the church, the abuses of the church, uh, both in money and in person. Uh, And he uh, created this Protestant movement. Now, he felt... Muhammad also felt the same way, that the reason that the Jews were not Christians was because of the church, because of the beliefs of Roman Catholicism. But since the beliefs of Protestantism were much more liberal, and they uh, uh, did away with much of the ritual of the church, and they did away with a great deal of the icons and statuary of the church, 
So he felt convinced that the Jews now would become Christians. They'd become Protestants. When the Jews refused to become Protestants, so then he became viciously anti-Semitic. Some of the worst statements regarding the Jews uh, were issued by Martin Luther. And... uh, when you look back in perfect hindsight, you can see that Germany was uh, almost ordained to play the role that it did in the 20th century simply because of its history, of its attitude towards Jews. That it was, uh, it was blood-drenched, it was filled with enmity, with enmity and hatred, and that therefore uh, the climate... Uh, for uh, the destruction of the Jews was always present in Germany. It's just that it wasn't always translated into action and behavior. But the climate for it was always there. You find this uh, thesis expanded in uh, Daniel Goldhagen's book, Hitler's Willing Executioners, where he discusses the fact that even though there are many, many other anti-Semitic countries in the world, and there were at that time as well, uh, no one was as particularly uh, fit, if we can use that word, uh, to do what the Holocaust did to the Jews, as were the Germans. Because it was part of the culture almost. It was baked into them. Uh, And in the Thirty Years' War... The Jews suffered uh, because when the Catholics won, so it was the Jews' fault. And when the Protestants won, it was also the Jews' fault. And the uh, city of Frankfurt, which was contested, uh, the Jewish population there sank so that there only were 415 Jewish families there at the end of the 1600s. So in 250 years, there was no increase in Jewish population in Frankfurt. Because the Jews, either because of pogroms, or because of expulsions, or because of fires, or because of collapses, or because of all of these things, and the economic situation, uh, the community did not grow. The situation changed in the the 1700s, early 1700s. So now we come to the uh, part about the disputes. Uh, In Frankfurt, all of the main disputes in the Jewish world spelled themselves out in Frankfurt. Shabzai the false messiah. So in the 1650s, he bursts on the scene. By the 1670s, he is proven to be an apostate, a fraud, a sham. But there was a large Sabbatean group in Frankfurt. And there was a tremendous dispute regarding them. It was almost civil war between the uh, Sabbateans and between uh, the Jews who no longer believed in Shavzai Tzvi and who in fact were so anti-Messianic that they were determined to drive these Jews out completely. In uh, 1711, a rabbi by the name of Naftali Cohen was the Rav in Frankfurt. Now together with 
Shafzai Tzvi is the idea of Kabbalah. Because uh, Shafzai Tzvi used Kabbalah uh, for his own ends. Uh, if you read uh, Gershon Sholem's uh, work on uh, the uh, biography of Shafzai Tzvi, so he maintains, there are scholars who disagree with him, but he maintains that it was the spread of Kabbalah that allowed this spirit of messianism that really created Shafzai Tzvi. And if it would not have been for the spread of the Kabbalah, especially the Kabbalah of the Ari, uh, then it never could have happened. But that it was a direct result of uh, this spread of Kabbalah to the masses who didn't know how to treat it, who didn't know how to deal with it, and therefore, uh, uh, so to speak, they took the truck and drove it over the cliff. Well, Naftali Cohen, the Rav in Frankfurt, was a Kabbalist. He was not a Sabbatean. He was not someone that followed Shabzai Tzvi, but he was a practitioner of Kabbalah. In 1711, a fire broke out in his house. The fire burned down his house. It burned the shul next door. It burned the mikveh. It burned down the entire Jewish quarter. The... Uh, the board of directors of uh, Rabbi Cohn's community decided that the fire was caused by Kabbalistic incantations which he recited in his house. And that therefore he was responsible for burning down the Jewish community of Frankfurt. There's no limit to the reasons that one can find for discharging a rabbi. And so they fired poor Rabbi Cohen, who all of his life afterwards, he was still a relative young man, could never get another rabbinic position because wherever he went, the fire went with him, right? They were afraid he was going to burn down their communities too. So even though he was a great Talmud Chochem, but his uh, active... Uh, Support of uh, and practice of Kabbalah is really what uh, did him in uh, because of this great fire. By 1715, four years later, again, the Jewish community came back to Frankfurt and started to rebuild the neighborhood. And uh, in 1721, there was another fire in Frankfurt. Now there was no rabbi to blame. But the fire uh, was of uh, such a nature that, again, it destroyed over a third of the Jewish homes in Frankfurt. So we find that uh, this, uh, this is almost also part of the uh, story of Frankfurt, is that the town burns down uh, every few years. Second conflict. First one was about Kabbalah. The second conflict is about Rav and Abishitz. Rav and Abishitz was the originally the Rav in Prague. We'll talk about him when we talk about Prague next. Uh, he was a great Gon, great Talmudic scholar, but he was a practitioner of Kabbalah. He uh, actually passed out amulets, kameas, to people who requested them. And there were different kameas for different uh, needs. This is the end of side one.
which was Danish German near Schleswig-Holstein in the north. He went from Prague to there. Rav Yaakov Emden, who was also a very, very uh, controversial uh, person, interesting, different person. We have an autobiography of his that is really called Megillat Sefer, which is just uh, fascinating. I mean, today it would not be allowed to appear. Because he has all sorts of stories about himself in there. He has a story that he fell in love with a woman and he wanted to marry her and his father wouldn't let him. So he had to listen to his father, but he said all of his life he never got over the fact that he loved her. This is even though he married another woman and had children. And he met up with this woman later in life and she uh, was a widow and she is the one who secured for him the position as being the Rovin Emden. And he has all sorts of other stories that, you know, like you don't associate it with, uh, with the usual uh, stories about people. So he was, uh, he owned the printing press, and he was a fierce anti-Sabbathean, fierce opponent of Shavsai Tzvi and those who supported him. He accused Rabbi Yonason Abishitz of being a secret supporter of Shabzai Tzvi, and he attempted to prove it through a wording that existed in the Kameas and the amulets that Rabbi Yonason Abishitz gave out. This was a machokas that racked all of Europe, and all rabbis had to take sides. He had to say who you were for. You either were for Rav Yonas and Abishitz, or you were for Rav Yaakov Emden. Because of this, in Frankfurt there were two very large families, the Khan family and the Kulp family. Both wealthy, both very well connected to the government, and they both hated each other. And they competed... And this is during the 1600s and 1700s. These two families, like for 150 years, was like the Hatfields and the McCoys. They competed for every position in the Jewish community. And the Jewish community, to a great extent, was terrorized by them. And when it came to Rav Yaakov Emden and Rav Yenis and Abishitz, so then again, each one chose their side. Because they weren't allowed to agree. And the Rav who defended Rabbi Yonas and Abishitz was thrown out by the other family that felt impelled to do so simply because the other party uh, was on his side. So you see that this was a very difficult place to be a rabbi in. Very difficult. And nevertheless, as we'll see in the, another few minutes, it always had great Rabbonim. Very few lasted the term of office, but it always attracted great rabbonim, always attracted great scholars, great rabbis. To be the Rav of Frankfurt was a great honor that people would not decline. So that was the second machlokas. Whose side were you on? Rav Yonas and Abishitz or Rav Yaakov Emden? People didn't intermarry because of it. There were fist fights in the synagogue because of it. People walked out when somebody got an aliyah. 
I only say this to emphasize how peaceful our synagogue is. In 1766, there was another great machlokas that also all the rabbis in Europe had to participate in, called the, the uh, get from Cleva, the divorce from Cleva. Cleva was a town where uh, a young man married a woman, and uh, his family was not happy with the shidduch. Uh, and they uh, broke it up, they broke up the marriage, and the young man gave the woman a divorce. So until now, everything is fine. Then the young man's family, for some reason, decided that they wanted the divorce invalidated so that they could control the girl's family. And therefore they said that the young man was not mentally competent when he gave the divorce. And this question of the divorce, of whether she had the right to remarry or not, became a cause celebrated throughout Europe. And again, rabbis had to choose sides. Is the get valid or is it invalid? And whichever way answered, you were certain to have opponents. Frankfurt again split in half on the question of the get from Cleva. And again, Rabonim had to leave because the Rabonim in town also split on it. And again, this became part of the politics of the two great families that were running Frankfurt. So one said, yeah, it's a wonder, it's a good divorce. If they said it's a good divorce, the other one said, no, it's not a good divorce. If she gets married, the children will be mamzerim. How can that be? All fights in the Jewish world come with a talus wrapped over it. They all bring in faith and religion. You know, we like to drag God into all the things that we do. Don't want to leave him out. So, uh, here you have these examples uh, which uh, greatly impeded any Jewish growth in Frankfurt because they always were fighting with each other. There was an anti-Semite by the name of Eisenmeringer who wrote a book in German, Endectus das Judentum, revealing... It's like the protocols of the elders of Zion. It's uh, all the things that are wrong. And he published it in Frankfurt. But the Jews in Frankfurt got a wind of the fact that it was being published. So what they did is they bought up all the copies of the book. So the book never got into wide circulation. Something which happened with Ben Hecht's book, Perfidy, in our time. When he wrote a book uh, regarding... Uh, what he felt was the role of the Zionist movement uh, during the Holocaust, and he wrote a very bitter book called Perfidy, and you could never get a copy of the book because the, uh, the powers that be always bought up the book whenever it came out. And uh, that was a tactic that was used many, many times. Uh, but books cannot be suppressed, all rumors to the contrary notwithstanding. Ideas can't be suppressed. Eventually it gets out. But that the Jews took it upon themselves uh, to somehow uh, counteract that anti-Semitism. In 1776, when America was uh, beginning its revolution, there was one of the usual wars between France and Germany. And the Jewish quarter of Frankfurt was bombarded by the French. And again it was destroyed. But by 1788, the Jews came back again to Frankfurt, 
and rebuilt it again. In the 1700s in Frankfurt, we have the rise of the great Rothschild family. As I mentioned to you, Rothschild was not his given name, that's the house that he lived in. had a red shield over it, and Rothschild was in money lending. Uh, but Mayor Anshul Rothschild, who was uh, an Orthodox uh, observant Jew, but he was very uh, adroit at it, and he had great connections. He uh, had borrowed enough money. The, the trick in life is to borrow enough money from the bank so they need you. You go to the bank and you borrow a thousand dollars or ten thousand shekel, you're in trouble. But if you borrow ten million dollars or a hundred million shekel, then they're your partners. Then they're not so quick to close you down. Because they're in it too deep. And Rothschild discovered that secret. And he was able to borrow great sums of money. And he lent the money to very high-ranking noblemen, princes, barons. And eventually he became the, the banker... Not only in Frankfurt, he became the banker in that part of Europe. He had five sons. He sent each of his sons to a different city. One went to Naples, one went to Paris, one went to London, one went to Vienna, one stayed with him in Frankfurt. And they developed for the first time what we call international banking. So for instance, they in, in the Napoleonic Wars, they financed both sides. So that whoever won, they won. And uh, they built this great banking empire, which still exists today in different forms. Investments and uh, securities. Rothschild not only became a household name in the Jewish world, he became a hero in the Jewish world. And because of the fact that he uh, not only made good but that they thought that this was the beginning of a period of time uh, when Jews would be able to rise to prominence and have freedom, etc. The old Jewish joke uh, about the uh, Bar Mitzvah teacher who said that if, if he was Rothschild, he would be richer than Rothschild. So they said, why? He said, because I'd keep on giving Bar Mitzvah lessons. But being richer than Rothschild was the slogan of the Jewish people from the 1700s onward. The uh, Jewish community began to receive the benefits of emancipation. In uh, 1796, they were allowed to leave the ghetto. They were allowed to live amongst Christians. In 1811, they got full civic equality. And by 1819, the Jews were established throughout. But this coincided with the rise of reform. Uh, in the early 1800s, Germany was overrun by the reform movement. Uh, beginning in 1803 in Hamburg, but it spread throughout Germany. Great reform temples were built. In fact, Geiger was once the rabbi in Frankfurt. Abraham Geiger who was really the father of the reform movement. And uh, as the Jews became wealthier, and as they became more convinced uh, that the emancipation ended uh, uh, their troubles, that there would be no more pogroms, 
and that they would be allowed to uh, do as they wished. So because of that, uh, reform gained very, very strong representation until the majority of the Frankfurt community was reform. Now, when the reform took over a community, it's somewhat, uh, well, I don't want to say it, because it's not quite analogous to the situation we have here in Israel, but the reform made a separate section to take care of the Orthodox Jews' needs. So that the community would support the, a kosher butcher, uh, the community would support the Hevra Kaddisha, it would support the mikveh, because they were convinced that all of this was going to die out soon anyway, and they didn't make a fight about it, and then the community, uh, even though it was run by the reform who didn't need any of these services, uh, nevertheless felt impelled to supply it. And then there came the great question of whether or not the Orthodox should belong to such a community, which is really the story of Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch. Uh, Hirsch was a... Uh, he was a rov in Moravia, not only a rov, he was a member of the parliament in Moravia. And uh, he was invited by a uh, small group of families. Shame and the AM will continue with our barrel wine and our lecture on the city of Frankfurt uh, coming up. The series we're doing now is entitled The Lost Communities. And we'll get back to that coming up at JM and the AM. It's Erev Shabbos on this Friday, July 12th, the 5th of Menachem Av, the 5th of our nine days, the year 5773. It's Erev Shabbos Parshas Dvarim, Erev Shabbos Chazon, with candle lighting time at 8.09 on this Erev Shabbos. 8.09 is the official candle lighting time on this Erev Shabbos. It's getting earlier. Many synagogues begin earlier than 8.09. Make sure you know when things start. Where you are, 74 degrees, 66% humidity, winds north at 12 miles an hour, showers and isolated thunderstorms, high today 78, as for Shabbos as well, tonight the low 71, Yerushalayim is at 86, Tel Aviv, Haifa at 84, a lot at 95, up in Guilford, New York, we have regards from our friends at Camp Masora. I spoke to uh, one of the directors, Ari Katz, the other day, they're at 62 degrees, heading up to 79 here on a Friday morning Broadcast at JM in the AM. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, WNYX Montgomery. Round the world in the, oh, Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial. Round the world in the web, jmnam.org. Golly, it's in the background. We will do our, uh, we will do our news from Israel, then wrap up our lecture on Frankfurt. Uh, weekly update at 7.40. Malcolm Holmline will join us. We'll do the weekly update at 7.40. Galitzal, Israel Army Radio, 2 p.m. newscast next at JMN. Galitzal, Hashash Taim, Kanehud Graf, in Mashakoreach Shav. Tuna Drachim Katlanit Bashomron. Adam Echad Neherag, Vod Shishanif Tukal, Bituna Drachim Alkvish Hamesh, Samuch Lari El. כתבנו עידו בן בג'י מוסר שפרמדיקים של מגן דוד אדום מטפלים בשעה זו ביתר הפצועים בזירת התאונה. מאולפן גלגלץ נמסר כי במקום נרשמים עומסי תנועה כבדים. מוקדם יותר, בכביש 38 סמוך לירושלים, נפצע הצעיר כבן 20 באורח קשה בהתהפכות ג'יפ. אדם נוסף נפצע קל. כתבנו יותם ברגר מוסר שהשניים פונו לבית החולים הדסה עם כרם. 
האם נתגלה מכשול בדרך למינוי של יעקב פרנקל לתפקיד נגיד בנק ישראל? יונה לייבזון. באתר הארץ דווח כי בעקבות פנייה לוועדת טירקל, החשד לגניבה שבוצעה על ידי הנגיד המיועד לפני שבע שנים בהונג קונג, חברי הוועדה התכנסו שוב לדון בנושא לפני האישור הסופי. מהוועדה נמסר כי חבריה התכנסו שוב לבחון פניות שונות שהוגשו בימים האחרונים, אבל גורמים בכירים בוועדת טירקל איתם דיברנו הבוקר העריכו כי אין בכך כדי לפגוע בהמלצת הוועדה. הפגנות של תנועת האחים המוסלמים נערכות בשעה זו בקהיר עם סיומן של תפילות יום השישי. המפגינים קוראים לשחרורו של הנשיא המודח מורסי. בנו, אוסאמה מורסי, אמר היום בריאיון לרשת CNN, אבי הוא עדיין נשיאה החוקי של מצרים. מה שאירע ב-30 ביוני זו לא מהפכה, וגם האמריקנים לא מכנים אותה כך. זו הפיכה צבאית, דברי מורסי הבן. אדל ביטון, בת השלוש, שנפצעה באורח אנוש מיידוי אבנים לפני ארבעה חודשים, שבה היום לראשונה לביתה. ביום ראשון היא תחזור לבית לוינשטיין להמשך תהליך השיקום. הנה אביה של אדל, רפי ביטון. סוג של התרגשות, מצד אחד ציפינו כשנחזור בריאה ושלמה, אבל כזה ברוך הוא מחליט שזה יהיה קצת יותר זמן, אז אנחנו מקבלים את זה באהבה. לפני ארבעה חודשים שלא מובן מאליו שנחזור שעה ביתה. שבת ראשונה מזה ארבעה חודשים שאנחנו עושים בבית. זה מיוחד בפני עצמו. הפעילים החברתיים ביום שבת יתקיים צעדה שתצא מרחבת כיכר הבימה ותגיע לרחוב קפלן, שם תתקיים משמרת מחאה עד לבוקר יום ראשון, 14 ביולי, התאריך שבו לפני שנתיים החלה מחאת האוהלים. באזור צפויות חסימות כבישים. מזג האוויר, עלייה קלה בטמפרטורות. מחר, התחממות נוספת. אלה החדשות שעורך טל מוסקוביץ'. בצוות, יסמין דפיצ'וטו ואפרים קרני. J.M. in the A.M. Galei Tzal with the uh, news from Israel. 7 a.m. Eastern time for us uh, every Monday through Friday here at J.M. in the A.M. We are here Monday, Erev Tishabav. We are here Tuesday on Tishabav itself with our Kinnis service. And I certainly hope that uh, if you cannot make it to synagogue, you certainly uh, tune in and uh, gain from the... Uh, experience here this coming Tuesday morning. Uh, we have been uh, playing and, and, um, and presenting Ray Beryl Wine's uh, Travels Through Jewish Heritage uh, series, um, thousands and thousands of lectures, really amazing, Travels Through Jewish History, Travels Through Jewish Heritage. Uh, we recommend you uh, contact uh, the Destiny Foundation at 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. We are in the midst of the uh, lecture on Frankfurt. We continue with Rabbi Burrow Wine at JM in the AM. Which is really the story of Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch. Uh, Hirsch was a... Uh he was a rov in Moravia. Not only a rov, he was a member of the parliament in Moravia. 
and uh, he was invited by a uh, small group of families to come to Frankfurt am Main and to build an independent community one that was independent of the general community because the general community was run by reform and uh, his community was called Austrit because of the fact that it stepped out of the general community and after a long fight both with the Jews and with the non-Jewish authorities uh, Hirsch was able to get his community recognized as a separate community and he built the great Orthodox community of Frankfurt am Main based on those uh, uh, principles that he would have nothing to do with the reform were completely independent and the community grew he had the very good fortune of having uh, Baron Rothschild, Willie Rothschild as a supporter and uh, when you have money so then you're able to accomplish things and uh, he was an unmatched person a person like Rabbi Hirsch hasn't come along for a long long time both with his uh, Torah wisdom, with his general knowledge, with his vision, with his philosophy, and with the strength of his personality. And he was able to create this great community, but it was not the majority community in Frankfurt. It never was. Uh, Hirsch had his opponents because there were Orthodox Rabbonim who felt that they should not leave the general community. They should remain part of the general community and that perhaps they would have an influence upon the reform. Many of the things that we hear today and that we face today uh, here in Israel uh, as to what role uh, the strictly orthodox religious community should play in the general society, which is obviously not very sensitive to its beliefs and to its behavior. In uh, the late 1700s, there was a rub in uh, Frankfurt by the name of Rabbi Nossen Adler. Rabbi Nossen Adler was a, a great Talmud Chochem, but he was also a great Kabbalist. This is still uh, only 60 years, 70 years after the incident with Rabbi Naftali Cohen, and therefore the community was very sensitive uh, to uh, people who practiced Kabbalah, etc., it also was the time of the beginning of the Hasidic movement and Germany never was hospitable to the Hasidic movement and for these reasons Rav Nadler was driven out of town he had his own private minion, he had his own private yeshiva but the Jews of Frankfurt drove him out he had a Talmud, he had a disciple uh, Rabbi Moshe Schreiber Sofer, the Hassam Sofer was his uh, Talmud Muvok, was his main disciple and Moshe Schreiber later became the Rav of Preshburg of Bratislava he became the founder of Orthodoxy, uh, the defender of Orthodoxy in Central Europe and one of the great poskim and Talmud Chachomim of the age he always signed his Tshuvis, Anochi Moshe Sofer Frankfurt the Mine he always identified himself as being from Frankfurt, that was his pedigree, so to speak, and as being a Talmud of Nosson Adler. We have such history before. Uh, as I mentioned to you, Frankfurt had great Rabbonim. So, uh, in uh, 1771, the Rav was Rabbi Pinchas Horowitz. 
Now Rabbi Pinchas Horowitz is the author of the famous Sefer, the Hafla, and he's the author of the famous Sefer, Hamakna and Gedushin. Great Talmud Chochem, his form are still used. He was really an outstanding person. There were two brothers. He was a closet chosid. He was a chosid from Eastern Europe. When he came to Frankfurt, he couldn't publicly display it, but that's who he was. He was forced to take a stand against Remnos and Adler in order to protect himself. His situation was never, never strong. And his son succeeded him, but also did not have uh, much success. In uh, for uh, the Hafloya, there was a Rav, the famous Rav Yaakov Yeshua Falk, the author of the Pnei Yoshua, which again is one of the basic books of commentary to the Talmud. Now he uh, was driven from town. Not just fired, he was driven from town. Uh, because of the fact that uh, he uh, backed the wrong party in a certain uh, dispute. And he was driven from town. So here you have great Rabbonim who just simply are unable to, to last there. Uh, the uh, Shaloh, Rabbi Shaya Levi Horowitz, who later became the Rov in Prague, began as the Rov in Frankfurt. Now between Prague and Frankfurt there always was a connection. Rabbonim came back and forth. And he was the Rov in Frankfurt like for 14 years. And then he moved to Prague, and from Prague he came to Eretz Yisrael where he died. The grandson of the Maral Prague uh, also was a Rav in Frankfurt. And the famous Maram Schiff, the Mayor Schiff, who was uh, commentary to the Talmud, is published in the back of all of the tractates of the Talmud, was also a uh, Rav in Frankfurt. And going back to the Middle Ages, uh, the author of the Alkut Shimoni, Reb Shimon Adarshan, was the Rav in Frankfurt. The Rav who wrote the uh, Sefer Aguda was a Rav in Frankfurt. Frankfurt had great, great Rabbonim. But most of the Rabbonim didn't last. It was a town that, uh, because of its internal problems, uh, the Rabbonim found it hard to uh, find for themselves a uh, permanent thing. As I mentioned to you, uh, when uh, Hirsch came to Frankfurt, Geiger had been in Frankfurt already. And Hirsch set himself up as the bulwark against reform without any uh, compromise whatsoever. Uh, we could really say uh, the idea of Torim der Heretz, of uh, Hirsch's success, was that he was able to produce the perfect German Jew who was completely observant. In other words, who was German to the core. Hirsch himself once said about his uh, congregation, he said it ironically, he said, my people are reverse Muranos. He said, the Muranos were Goyim on the outside and Jews on the inside. And my people, he said, are Jews on the outside, but they're Germans on the inside. And there was a certain amount of truth to that because the, uh, when they dedicated the great Frankfurt Shul or of Samshur of Foyle Hirsch and the Shul had over 60 Sifre Torah in it and the, the Kaiser and everyone came and you know, it was 
So they were going to be in Frankfurt forever. They didn't see that 60 years the shul would be burnt to the ground. No one could imagine that such a thing would happen. So in retrospect, uh, it may look strange to us, but uh, we can be certain uh, that our great-grandchildren will look back at us and say, you know, how could they not have seen, etc., etc. That's, that's really what life is, that when you're in the middle of things, so then you don't see it. You can't see it. One of the great things about Frankfurt was that it had a Jewish printing presses. And, uh, for instance, the first copy of the, uh, of the Marshal, of Shmuel Edel's commentary to the Agodos of, of uh, the Talmud, was printed in Frankfurt am Main. It was an interesting Jewish printer in Frankfurt. He came up with a great idea. A man by the name of Colmer. Uh, he didn't have any money to print. He wanted to print the Rif, the Alphys on the Talmud. And he figured out that he needed to sell 1,700 copies at the price of $10 each. And uh, he had expenses, uh, eleven, twelve thousand dollars $12,000, and the rest would be his profit. So how do you raise the eleven, twelve thousand dollars $12,000? So what he did is that you signed up for a lottery. He ran a lottery. And everybody that paid for the lottery would get a copy of the book. One person would win the lottery. But there would be $11,000 left over for him to print the book. Now that was a very original idea at which he went bankrupt. <laughs> there are two famous works that uh, describe uh, the customs and ritual of Frankfurt. Frankfurt had its own Nusach. There's Nusach Ashkenaz, the Nusach of German Jews, but there's Nusach Frankfurt. And within Frankfurt itself there were two Nuschos. And they were very, very strongly protected. Fiercely protected. So we have two famous forum. One uh, written in the 1600s by Rabbi Yosef Yosef Han Neulingen. And it's called Yosef Ometz. And it's a collection of the liturgy and the customs of Frankfurt am Main. A century later, in 1718, another Rov in Frankfurt, also named Yosef Yosef, but his last name was Kashman published a sefer called Noe Katzon Yosef, which is Minig Frankfurt. He even has the Minig of how to pronounce the letters in the Torah correctly. So he says there an interesting thing. He says the only ones that pronounce it correctly are the Svartim. He writes that. The Svartim, you know, uh, the O is an A, and the, 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 the Sof is a Tof, and everything. He said, that's correct. But he said, since this is our minig, we're not allowed to go away from it. And we have to pronounce it the way we pronounce it. So he has there the famous, instead of O, the German owl, and other things that are part of uh, the minig of Frankfurt, how to pronounce 
how to say what the letters are. And he says that if you're leaning, if you're reading the Torah in Frankfurt, this is the way you have to read it. It doesn't make any difference which is the right way, this is the way to read it. And uh, that uh, sort of uh, attitude has remained pretty universal with Jews, uh, which wherever they are, that they read the Torah the way they read it. And you know, don't confuse them with the facts, what are the right way, the wrong way, this is the way we read it. And then you have therefore very different dialogues regarding Frankfurt. The uh, Frankfurt Jewish community, like the German Jewish community generally, was destroyed in the Holocaust. Some of it survived by being able to emigrate to the United States and here to Israel. In the United States you have the famous Frankfurt Kehillah, uh, that Rabbi Breuer, Rabbi Jacob Breuer, uh, created in Washington Heights. And uh, now it's three generations later that preserved, so to speak, much of uh, what was in Frankfurt. And here in Israel also, uh, it exists in many, many places. It's interesting that there are uh, a large number of Jews in Frankfurt today. Thousands of Jews. Some estimate it as even more than thousands, tens of thousands. It's the financial center of Germany and uh, there are many many Jews who live there and uh, so uh, to a certain extent the Jewish community of Frankfurt still lives on but these are not German Jews they're Israelis and Russians and they are uh, people who uh, are there for business etc so even though there is some infrastructure of Judaism and of a Kehillah in Frankfurt, but the great Frankfurt Kehillah, the great Frankfurt Amain, is a casualty of the Holocaust, like many, many other great Kehillahs of Europe. It doesn't exist anymore, but its memories still exist, and its traditions exist because Jews from Frankfurt, Rabboni from Frankfurt, survived, and they're able to transfer it to a certain extent uh, to later generations as well and uh, I know that I was once in Frankfurt and uh, they, t- they said well here this was here and this was here and this is where the cemetery was and this is where this was once you say that it was here so then it's not here anymore that's a different feeling completely so uh, to say that it's a live community uh, would be to overstate the problem a little in any event, uh, this has been a cursory view of this great community of Frankfurt on Main, uh, which uh, really has had a great influence on the Jewish people throughout the ages. This con- J.M. in the A.M., Friday morning on this July 12th, 5th of Menachem Av, a special greeting to those tuned in around the world at jmtheam.org, and a special hello to those who are listening up in the Catskill region at 90.1 on the FM dial. Thank you. Thank you for keeping J.M. in the A.M. as a priority even during your break or when you're traveling around this globe. It's Erev Shabbos Parshas Dvarim, Erev Shabbos Chazon. Tishabov is Monday night. Eicha is Monday night. Tishabov day is Tuesday. We'll be here with Kinnis on Tuesday morning right here at JM in the AM. We'll do our reminders regarding uh, what we have to offer on Tishabov in general, events, etc. We'll do that later on. In this radio broadcast, candle lighting at 8.09 on this era of Shabbos with 74 degrees, showers and a high temperature of 78. 7.20 in the morning, we're about 20 minutes away from our weekly update. Malcolm Honline will be joining us. Make sure to be tuned in as we go through the events of this week and there are plenty to discuss. Um, 
and we will do that coming up. Uh, Rabbi Beryl Wine's lectures have been the centerpiece of our nine days format, and uh, today is no exception. We continue with an amazing series entitled The Lost Communities. And uh, Rabbi, Beryl, Rabbi Beryl Wine, in uh, this lecture, speaks about the city of Prague at JM in the AM. Tonight's lecture uh, concerns itself with the great Jewish community of Prague. Uh, the capital of Bohemia, uh, today the capital of the Czech Republic. Uh, it's one of the oldest Jewish communities in Europe, still functioning today even though there are a small number of Jews. Uh, though as the Rov of Prague told me uh, personally two years ago uh, that there are probably 50,000 people, he said, in Prague that have some Jewish blood. But because of things that we will discuss that occurred in the 19th and 20th centuries. Uh, there are half-Jews, quarter-Jews, Jews who don't know they are Jews, hidden Jews. Prague is a microcosm of all of the tragedies that have happened in the Jewish world, especially in the last two centuries. The Jews were in Prague uh, in the 10th century, in the 900s. We already have a record that there were over 300 Jewish families in Prague. And uh, it's interesting that uh, whereas the Jews from in Germany mainly were in the Rhineland and in uh, Spires and Worms and Mainz, they were the Talmudim of Rabbeinu Gershom, Oragola, and that's where Rashi got his start before moving back to France. The Jews in Prague came directly to Prague from Babylonia. And uh, Prague is on the river. And uh, it was an important trading post on the river in Roman times already. And therefore it was a natural place for a city to be developed. And wherever cities were developed in the Middle Ages... The Jews attempted to live within cities rather than in small communities. There's a pendulum in the Jewish world. Uh, in, the East, in Eastern Europe, Jews lived in small towns and not in cities. And they didn't come to the cities until the 19th century. But in uh, Western Europe, Jews always lived in cities simply because of the fact that the cities offered them, so to speak, more protection for the uh, regular uh, ongoing persecution and pogroms that were visited upon Jews by the church and by the noble people who control the governments and the cities. So the Jews not only lived in the cities, they always lived near the cathedral. They always lived near the big church. Again, because that was a place of protection. Because as... Uh, uh, many times it was the church that saved the Jews by opening its gates and allowing the Jews to find refuge in the church compound or in the monastery compound until uh, the mob's fury abated. And therefore, wherever you go throughout Europe, uh, in Spain you'll see it, and you'll see it in uh, Provence, and you'll see it also in uh, here in uh, Bohemia, uh, the Jewish quarter was always hired by the main churches and the cathedrals. Now that was not necessarily true in Prague because the great Prague Cathedral was built on one side of the river 
the Jewish community was on the other side of the river. But when the Prague Cathedral, which uh, took about 200 years to build, and uh, if anyone who has been to Prague, it's one of the uh, architectural sites that always is shown, the same stonemasons and builders who built that cathedral built the Altnaishul. Because the Jews said, as long as they're here, uh, you know, so... Uh, uh, the Alt Nishul was built, so to speak, by stonemasons who moonlighted. It was a second job, a third job. We don't know exactly when the Alt Nishul was built. It existed in the 1100s already. It's the oldest functioning synagogue, continuously functioning, with the exception of the period of the Nazis, in the uh, probably in the world. It's uh, 900 years. And uh, why it was called the Alt Nishul, there are uh, various interpretations. The one that's probably the most logical is that originally it was the Alt Shul, it was the Old Shul, and then they refurbished it. Uh, it's been refurbished many times over the centuries, as you can imagine. It has just finished the refurbishing job now itself again. So now they have air conditioning and heating, uh, which in the 1100s was scarce. And uh, they, uh, they fixed over the shul. Uh, so when it was renovated, so then it was called the night shul, but the new shul, the new synagogue. But then they combined it and called it the alt night shul because there was another shul that was called the alt shul that they never refurbished, and it remained the old shul. So this was the old new shul. It's a theory. It's as good a theory as any. And uh, the uh, Jews in uh, Prague suffered. Uh, horrible things and as I mentioned when we discussed Frankfurt on Main last week uh, Jews are tenacious people and no matter how many times they got thrown out of Prague and no matter how many times the uh, non-Jewish population burned down the Jewish quarter and no matter how high the taxes became and how unbearable life was the Jews always returned to Prague so that we have on record that the Jews were expelled at least six times from Prague. But the Jews always came back. In spite of everything, uh, the Jews prospered in Prague. They prospered economically, they prospered socially, and they certainly prospered in Torah. Prague has a record of Rabonim, of great Talmud Chachomim, great scholars, great rabbinic leaders, almost unmatched by any other community in the world. And it was a continuous uh, line, and uh, the people went out of their way to find the position in Prague. So we will find that some of the greatest Jewish leaders, the rabbinic leaders who were rabbis in other communities, always managed somehow to do a, a few years stint in Prague. Now, I don't know whether Prague was the stepping stone to greater positions, or it was the greater position. But uh, the, the roster of people, as I hope I'll discuss with you in a few moments, that were Rabbonim in Prague, really is unmatched in the Jewish world. The Jews were there in the uh, Middle Ages, as I mentioned. In uh, 1338, there were 80 Jewish families in Prague. 
Charles the Fourth, who became the uh, emperor, the Holy Roman Emperor, he uh, extended rights to the Jews, and he is the one who brought the Jews into the money lending business. As I discussed with you when we uh, talked about Frankfurt am Main, the money lending business was really forced upon Jews because of constraints of the church that they did not want to have Christian money lenders and because of the fact that the noblemen uh, were the only ones that had money and the only way money makes money is by having it circulate and the interest rates in the Middle Ages were usurious, they were enormous I mean 35-40% was normal so that nobody ever paid off a loan couldn't almost if you took a great amount of money and uh, so the Jews would borrow money from the noblemen at 25% or at 30% and they would lend it out at 40% and the 10% in the middle was their spread was their profit but it also had to include the fact that every so often or very often like Bank Lumi uh, the debts were uncollectible and you were stuck with it so all of that had to be factored in. Again, you have to realize that nobody loves a banker. And certainly nobody loves a money lender, especially when the money lender is taking 40% uh, interest on the loan. So the Jews socially were forced into a profession that guaranteed, even if they wouldn't be Jewish, it guaranteed enmity, it guaranteed jealousy, it guaranteed that people would resent it. And that always contributed to the fact that, and the illiterate Christian mob, always contributed to the fact that the danger of a pogrom was instantaneous. It was right around the corner at any time. And any little thing would touch it off. And in the history of Prague, there are four or five little things that happened, each one of which led to a tremendous pogrom. For instance, on the Good Friday in 1389, Jewish children from the Cheder threw stones at a procession of Christians marching in, a good, in the Good Friday Parade. It was a, a, a common thing in the Middle Ages that they would carry a crucifix and, uh, and uh, people would have wooden crosses on their back or they would whip themselves in commemoration of Good Friday of the fact that uh, that was the anniversary, uh, so to speak, of the uh, crucifixion of Jesus by the Romans. And uh, so uh, at this uh, procession, so there's a wild kid from Cheder, whom we all know, he lives next door to us. He's still throwing stones today, except today he's throwing them at Jews. He's burning the garbage and may assure him or other things, right? He's got nothing to do with himself. So the kid threw a stone, right? Well, don't ask. 3,000 Jews died because of that stone. Because this was Easter weekend, and the uh, uh, preachers in the church on Easter Sunday preached about the malevolence of the Jews and the fact that they were guilty of the crucifixion and everything else. And therefore on Easter Monday, 
there was a pogrom that killed 3,000 Jews in Prague and left almost no one unscathed, no Jew unscathed in the community. Not only that, but after the pogrom, uh, so then the houses are looted, all the money is taken. Interesting that the... uh, the government of Bohemia recorded that they confiscated five tons of silver from the Jewish community. So the Jewish community was not poor. And uh, the tons of silver reflected itself in the Judaica and the other things that Jews had, and also reflected itself in the fact that since paper money didn't exist yet in Europe, Paper money was a later uh, invention that came from China. So uh, you needed silver, gold, you needed coins that were uh, that had value in order to be able to do business. And as I mentioned, the Jews were the money lenders, so they had silver. And all of that was confiscated and taken from them. There's a uh, piyut, uh, really a slicha, that is recited, that was recited, and may still be recited, there's a, there's a Nusach of Bohemia, just like there's a Nusach of Ashkenaz, a ritual of prayer of Ashkenaz, and a ritual of prayer of Spain, wherever Jews went in the world, so the basic form of the prayer service was the same. But there are nuances and difference always. And this was called Bohem, and this was their Nusach, and there's a special slicha which is recited until, until today which commemorates the terrible events of 1349, uh, 1389 rather, in Prague, this great pogrom that almost wiped out the Jewish community. It's called Et Kol Raiti, I saw all of this. The author is Eba Vigdor Kara, and uh, it's a... Uh, Tremendous dirge, a poem of sadness over uh, the destruction of the Prague Jewish community. However, as I mentioned, the Jews are tenacious. Four years later, in 1393, the Jewish community is back. And the king uh, offers them protection, as does the archbishop. Apparently, part of the reason was that they simply couldn't get along without the Jews. They didn't find reliable people to make money lenders. And the Jews also uh, were uh, merchants. And the Jews had systems of credit that they invented. So again, you have to imagine the Middle Ages, if you wanted to buy something, you had to bring coin. One of the reasons why in the Middle Ages in Christian Europe, the commerce of the country never developed is because of the fact that you know, if you wanted to come and buy a building, you have to come with a wheelbarrow full of silver, right? Who could bring it? Who could take it? And as early as the uh, 10th and 11th centuries, we have records that Jews already uh, wrote out what we would call today a check. You know, they say, Yankel, give Yossel, uh, you know, a hundred florins and uh, I'll pay you. And Yankel would do it, because so you didn't have to walk around with a hundred florins. And Jews had letters of credit, and Jews always had relatives. And they trusted their relatives, something which has waned today. But there was a time when you could uh, rely on the fact that 
the Yosel would give the hundred and Yankel would pay him back and there wouldn't be a problem. And you see that reflected in the Shilas and Chuvas of the time. Because once in a while there was somebody that, you know, he said, Lo yadvorim olam, lahadam, I don't know what you're talking about, right? They never saw it. And they produced the check. And he said, he doesn't know from it, and he didn't sign it, and he didn't... And you'll see that the rabbis were especially harsh, and especially strong in enforcing these things, even when it was in doubt. Because usually the halacha is, Hamotzi mechavero olav haraya. You want to collect money, you got to prove it. And the best thing in the world is to have the money in your pocket. That's the best time in the world. I've got the money. The other person has to get it from me. But here, the rabbi, so to speak, took an opposite tack because they wanted to preserve in the ability to do commercial transactions, and which was the Jewish livelihood, and therefore they had to defend fact that when a person sent a check it would be honored and he would be repaid and therefore it's like a takana, it's like a special law that the rabbis made over and above the halacha to make certain that the wheels of commerce would be oiled and that uh, Jews would make a living in 1497 a law was passed restricting interest to 20% 20% you couldn't make money. Which in effect meant that the Jews were going to be forced out of the money lending business. And the king of Bohemia, it went like this. There were kings of Bohemia, and then part of the time Prague belonged to Poland. So there were kings of Poland that came there. And then again the Bohemians took over. And then later the Austrians took over, and the French took over, and the Swedish conquered it. It was always going back and forth. And every time he got new kings, so it depends, I mean, how frum he was. It depends how religious he was. How much he was under the influence of the church. And how practical he was also. So many times, unfortunately, ideology overrides practicality. We're witness to it here in in our beloved land, how ideology overrides practicality. Uh, Anyone who lived in the Soviet Union knows how ideology overrode practicality. So the ideology is that the collective farm is perfect because Marx said it was perfect. Or the kibbutz is perfect. The practicality is that it doesn't work. Even when the people work, the system doesn't work. If you'll add to it the fact that the people don't work, so then you have the, then you have what the Soviet Union looked like. So at 20%, the Jews couldn't make money. So then all of it dried up. And then the whole economy dried up because there was no money being borrowed, no money being lent, no money being invested. And then when that happened, so then the king had to relent and change it again. But if you're living in that time, let's say you're living in that 20-year span when you can't lend money at more than 20%, then what do you do? You starve. That's, uh, that's basically what you do. And the fact that in history, 20 years is nothing is a little comfort to you if it's your 20 years. If it's the 20 years that you're in business. In 1502... Uh, the Jews were uh, again 
exiled from Prague, thrown out of Prague. Also on a crazy story, there was a Jew that was demented. He was insane. He was a Meshuganer. So every community has... It was sometimes they're hard to identify. But every Jewish community has demented people. Some of them even get elected to public office. But every Jewish community has demented people. And he was a demented person. And he said that the, the Lord appeared to him and he killed a Christian child with a stone. So then you had the blood libel. And then you had everything. So he was tortured to death publicly, but the Jewish people were thrown out of pride. Because how could it be that there would be a demented Jew? The Jews, you know, they purposely got this guy to do it because they needed the Christian child, they needed the blood for the matzahs, the whole baloney, the whole story. So the Jews are gone. By 1518, they're back again. Another Jewish community. And this time, they made a deal, uh, it's almost funny, except it's not funny, that uh, they made an arrangement that they paid the government in Prague that the next time they're thrown out, the government should take care of the Jewish cemetery, and it should take care of the mikveh, and take care of the matzah bakery so that when they come back it'll be, you know, it'll be ready for them. And they, we, we have recorded in the records they paid 50 schlock, which was a bohemian coin, annually to the city fathers. And this was the agreement that whenever the Jews had to leave they would take care of the cemetery and they would take... And it's interesting that they did take care of the cemetery. And that's why the cemetery is still there today. The old, one of the oldest Jewish cemeteries in the world has graves that we know that go back to the 1200s because the government took care of it. I have a, another true story that uh, in line with this that there was a certain congregation in Detroit, Michigan so in Detroit for a period of time unfortunately Jewish neighborhoods changed every 15, 20, 25 years. So there was a synagogue that had a magnificent structure in the original Jewish neighborhood. When the neighborhood changed, so they sold it to a black church. And they moved out to the new neighborhood and built another magnificent structure. Well, that lasted about 20 years, and then that neighborhood changed. So the same black church came and bought the, uh, the second synagogue, and now the Jews moved out and built another, the third time, an enormous, beautiful synagogue. So the pastor of the church came to the rabbi and said, you know, we'd like to have representation on the building committee because eventually, you know, we, you know, we have a few ideas of what we need here. So, uh, you know, that's a bitter joke, but it's true. But here also is a bitter joke. The Jews know they're going to get thrown out, but they made an arrangement. You'll take care of it uh, while we're being thrown out. So when we come back, uh, we won't have to start all over again. Now, in Prague, there was such a thing called the Jew flag. If you go into the Altnai Shul, on the Bima, on the Balemer of the Shul, in one of the corners, there's a flag. And the flag has on it the picture of a hat, which was the symbol of the Jewish community. So that hat 
was originally a Swedish hat. And the Jews helped defend the city of Prague against the Swedes. And they were awarded this flag by the uh, king of Bohemia as a commemoration of the fact that they defended the city ably against... But the, the hat was yellow. And the yellow hat in Prague was a Jewish hat. And the Jews, all the male Jews, had to wear a yellow hat with a peak. That it came to a peak. Now, for instance, if you see in the Jewish world, there are certain certain chassidim that wear always yarmulkes that come to a peak. The ger chassidim especially, but you see it by other chassidims too. Where does that come from? All of this comes from the fact that Jews, when they were forced to do something, turned what was supposed to be derogatory and insulting to them, they turned it into a badge of pride. J.M. in the A.M. Friday morning, Rabbi Beryl Wine's lectures, as usual, are an important part of our nine days format. And we will try to get to the conclusion of the Prague lecture from the series The Lost Communities after Rabbi Yudin presents uh, from Israel. Rabbi Yudin will be presenting his um, Torah portion discussion from Israel coming up right here. At JM and AM Friday morning, weekly update time. Speaking of time, candle lighting time at 8.09 on this Erev Shabbos Chazon. 8.09. A lot of synagogues begin earlier. Make sure you know when things start where you are. Monday's Erev Tisha B'Av, we're here. Tuesday's Tisha B'Av, we're here with a Kinnis service in the morning. And uh, we'll try to run through all the different events that are going on to inspire and enhance everyone's Tisha B'Av. Uh, we'll try to do that a little later on in this broadcast, and certainly we'll do it uh, Monday morning here between 6 and 9 a.m. I want to thank our friends at JewishWorldReview.com who continue to enthusiastically remind uh, all of their readers to uh, listen in and tune in to what we refer to uh, as the Nahum Siegel Network at jmnam.org, our amazing live stream with great programming, JewishWorldReview.com continues to enlighten us with thousands of articles on a regular basis on a variety of topics and a tremendous insight into the political and Jewish world. Check it out, jewishworldview.com. We continue to highly recommend it. Also, I wanted to mention that, uh, speaking of Tisha B'Av, keep in mind and put on your calendar that we'll be davening Mincha uh, with the leadership of Rabbi Avi Weiss this coming Tuesday with Talos and Tzfilin at 2 p.m. at the Isaiah Wall. An amazing, uh, almost four-decade-long tradition. 2 p.m., Isaiah Wall, across from the United Nations, on First Avenue at 43rd Street. One of the parents of um, a parent of a victim of the uh, Merkazarov massacre of five years ago is going to be speaking at the service, and everyone is encouraged to be there. And I hope uh, most of the time I do make it, and I hope to be there this year. As well, Malcolm Honline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us for the weekly update here on a Friday Arab Shabbos Chazon. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Great to be with you as always. Uh, I, by the way, folks, I remind you that uh, Malcolm announced last week, October the fifteenth, will be the big tribute dinner for the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. And once um, one makes a reservation, Malcolm, they are invited to come and participate in that beautiful event. That is absolutely true. It'll be a very special, unique one time in 20 years, and God willing, not for another 20 years, <laughs> uh, dinner 
that will mark the 50th anniversary of the conference and honoring the past chairman and uh, myself for, for covering all this period. And uh, I think it will be very unique in a uh, once-in-a-lifetime event. No question about that. ABC News put it this way. Uh, Israeli police say an ultra-Orthodox soldier has been accosted in a religious Jerusalem neighborhood in a sign of anger over plans to begin drafting religious men into the army. Malcolm, what is the responsible reaction from all sides to this episode? There has to be an absolutely clear, unequivocal condemnation. And I saw the, uh, an editorial in the papers like Hamodia. Others have taken this issue on straightforward and to make sure that it's clear, number one, this does not represent the Haredi community. It doesn't represent any segment of the Haredi community. It was denounced and renounced by leaders uh, from every segment. And that message has to get out clearly. The, the lax attitude towards a lot of the posters that were put up, um, demeaning and attacking uh, the IDF and the, those who serve, the fact that um, uh, Haredi and, and religious guys who join Nahal Haredi or other groups have been subjected to this kind of, of uh, horrific treatment should have been condemned and, and, and stopped a long time ago. It's got to be now. And and as you know, they, they just opened, announced a new Machina unit, the defense minister. They're doing things to accommodate the demand that there is for, for young men who want to come, who go into the service and who are accommodated, their religious needs are accommodated, and certainly they should be recognized and their service appreciated, uh, regardless of whether these other people are serving or not. Um, for those who've never been to Israel and have never had the privilege of walking the streets of major cities in uh, the Holy Land, we can both attest to the fact that even if there isn't great enthusiasm from all sides for everybody, including soldiers in the Israeli army at all times, there is a certain courtesy that is noticeable from everybody toward Israeli soldiers. So I, I would like to emphasize, as you just did, but maybe in a different way, that this is a rare exception, and hopefully, please God, with everything that's being negotiated now in the Knesset, hopefully it will stay that way. And it's the climate that we talk about all the time that has been... Uh, created in, on so many fronts, whether it's about the chief rabbis, whether about the political issues, not just involving the religious community generally, right. that everything now becomes a divisive issue that excites population, that excites people, rather than cool heads debating, and can, their differences are legitimate, and debate is legitimate, but it has to be done in the right way, and, and we have to set the standard. I mean, when, if not before Tisha B'Av, and when we mark the destruction of the temple because of Sinat Chinam, that and uh, you know for the hatred that existed between people this has always been our downfall and it's it's got to be checked the uh, in in one of the lectures that Rabbi Wine presented uh, actually we heard it today so he was talking about how one specific personal family right. issue you heard that right I know be- Right, became became a community issue, and are you on this side or are you on that side? Very similar, I guess, to what we would call... The I have to tell you that I saw this week on two occasions, completely separate, top, two of the top people in Israel's high-tech industry, as far from religious as they could be, but both of them got up in different form and uh, spoke in defense of the Haredim and against the demonization. And, 
uh, it, it shows me that there is a backlash, that people are seeing that the excessiveness of so many of the comments, the articles, these attacks in, the, in some of the media there, it, uh, on, on all sides, are just completely unacceptable. Right, yeah, the potential danger that I'm referring to, of course, is, as you just said, is that, uh, God forbid, this one issue can really uh, 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 create such a large gap among uh, brethren. You know, we talk about, uh, God forbid, how things like this can exacerbate and lead to, I don't even want to say what, but, uh, um, you know, f- physical war one against the other, and uh, we have to be very careful before, God forbid, it turns in that direction. Um, and by the way, you know, uh, excuse me for being philosophical, maybe maybe this is a good time because we are right before Tisha B'Av. It struck me this morning, uh, as I'm looking at the New York Times, that we have gotten to a place now where with all the problems and all the centuries and sometimes we lose historical perspective not only can we talk about the state of Israel and all these accomplishments and the amazing luxurious life that relatively all of us have because of the state in this generation but the new york what's the biggest issue in the new york times this morning the powder room at the knesset what would our predecessors 100 200 300 years ago have said if we told them that in 2013 the featured article in, in the world's most prominent or most, most prestigious newspaper would be how people are being treated for their specific needs in the Israeli House of Parliament. They might have applauded it and said, if that's the biggest charge that the Jews have at that time, then it's a good sign. Exactly. But it, it, it just shows the, how ludicrous the media has become and how uh, the New York Times and the reports almost every day continue this these one-sided, distorted views of every issue related to Israel. I agree with you, but you understand where I'm coming from from a a positive vein. Historically, it's just remarkable and unbelievable. All right, the big question, we addressed this last week. I'm sure you have a clearer picture now. The the U.S. will not in any way cut any financial aid to Egypt, whether it was a coup or not at this point, right? They they are not. They're trying to avoid it, and I discussed last week uh, trying to avoid defining what is happening as a coup because law mandates immediate and automatic uh, uh, cutoff of funds. So they are being very careful. There are some in Congress who are saying that they should pass some sort of a waiver and not avoid the use, but say that there would be some sort of a, a, a waiver provision introduced that would allow the aid to continue because Israel and others also feel that right now cutting it off, and, and we're not talking about a huge transfer of funds right now, uh, because much of the money has been already transferred, or mo- almost all of it, for this year, but uh, because of the message that it would send and, and undermining the military, uh, there is a feeling that the money should be more directed, i.e., the, uh, to anti-terrorism activities, uh, and not just give them another group of uh, tanks or planes that they're getting delivered in the next uh, few weeks. Um, so. Given the situation, given the, the especially the situation in the Sinai and the disruption there, and the fact that their troops are, are spread now in many areas where they haven't been for a long time, uh, even along the Suez Canal, because there had been an attempt to fire a Grad missile there, or the killing of uh, their soldiers in the Sinai and the mobilization of this war council by the Muslim Brotherhood and and, and by uh, and, and Hamas's organizing together with others and sending people from Gaza into into the Sinai to to attack 
uh, Egyptian troops there, but also to uh, to operate against Israel. And you know, they found a missile that had been fired against a lot from uh, from Egypt, and it's it's not necessarily even Hamas. It's Islamic Jihad. You have Al Qaeda. You have many other um, groups that are are operating there, and people. You know, tend to look at Egypt in a narrow sense, but don't think about what's happening. The, the, there are attempts now to target Israelis, even Israeli Arabs, to kill the tourism business in, in Egypt. To um, and the Muslim Brotherhood together has armed cells together with Al Qaeda and Hamas's uh, armed cells uh, that are are organizing. They some of the tunnels have been shut down, but they still have enough to operate. Uh, and to get into the Sinai, uh, they killed a couple of Egyptian soldiers and police, and they, well, there were a number of attacks even on an airport again. Uh, so this is the aid that uh, we give should be to aid and assist the people who are the Egyptian troops in fighting uh, the terrorist organizations there. All right, and if not for that, if the U.S. did not feel that Egypt was a really important front line uh, ally in fighting those terrorists, would they strongly consider taking away the financial aid, or is this just a convenient excuse? They would suspend it. They would, they would suspend it. Uh, yeah, I think that, that, well, there is a lot of anger because the United States it is given, it, the appearances that the United States was backing uh, Morsi and the Muslim Brotherhood, you, the signs that one sees at the demonstrations, which are not, uh, by the way, were broadly reported, but. Right. Um, the, the, the signs all over condemning the American ambassador, condemning the uh, U.S. Uh, the president, the administration for for backing Morsi, and uh, the uh, so so the the fact is that he had an, there was an election, he was elected, but certainly not in the interests long term interest of the United States to see the Muslim Brotherhood continue. You see how the Saudis and um, and the uh, uh, the Kuwaitis rushed in with $8 billion and $4 billion, respectively, in, in aid, uh, which counters the money that uh, Qatar used, was pouring into to the Muslim Brotherhood government and into the into Hamas. And one of the tests now is to see, and Congress is going to measure and send a notice to the ambassador of Qatar saying that the relationship is going to be contingent with the United States, will be contingent on their stopping their aid to Hamas and terrorist groups. But the the situation in Egypt right now and the willing the desire to see some sort sort of stability, but the fact is that even with all this aid, these are temporary buy offs when the economy, as we know, is in in total shutdown. Uh, the order now to to arrest more of the Islamic uh, Brotherhood leaders, including the Supreme Guide. Uh, is going to exacerbate the tensions. And today, being the Friday and after the uh, services in the mosques, we'll see this is the time when Muslim Brotherhood demonstrators come out. They're threatening campaigns of violence. They're threatening to escalate the violence and attack and assassinate leaders and others. Uh, so the situation is far from, from uh, stable. Ninety people, I think, were killed this week. Uh, and the... Um, the militia groups that exist are going to uh, only escalate, and the Salafists, who are the more extreme of the Muslim Brotherhood uh, and their war council, are, are going to try to take advantage of this. You know what? So, yeah. ra- they rally the Islamists, even if the Muslim Brotherhood has lost some of their support. You know what's so amazing is, um, and, and it must be, uh, you know, like uh, amazing for the political scientists to analyze this, but it, it is amazing how important so many countries feel a stable Egypt is. 
As if it's like an anchor of the Middle East. Well, it is. It's the biggest country. It's the most prestigious. It's now not necessarily the most powerful. And and you see the intensity. And I, I point out last week, remember how all the different countries react. Well, look how this week it, it was borne out with Iran uh, being very happy with Morsi's uh, downfall and, and the Syrians and the others. But the ramifications that they see the ramifications, let's say, for, for Hamas, that they don't have the Muslim Brotherhood government to rely on, but on the other hand, it could enhance Iran's leverage with Hamas, mm. which could escalate the violence, and Morsi and the Muslim Brotherhood continue the cooperation with the IDF for their own reasons, but uh, they they uh, continued it. On the other hand, a democratic revolution in Cairo could, es- could ultimately ele- elevate their standing again, and uh, be a model that will scare places like Egypt and Turkey. Right. Uh, we may owe a debt of gratitude in the long run to the protesters. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's good. You know, we don't know how this is going to break up. One of the byproducts of all of this, of course, is that Syria took the focus off Iran. Now Egypt took the focus off Syria. Right. And in the meantime, Iran is racing ahead towards a nuclear program. You know, people hardly write about it today. There will be articles because of new assessments that... Uh, um, of the State Department, that the uh, nuclear, that their Iran's uh, ballistic missiles will be set to test in the, in a year and a half or so. But talking about uh, China, North Korea, and Iran becoming uh, uh, nuclear um, uh, capable uh, countries, meaning having uh, nuclear warheads capable of being fired with ballistic missiles, etc. Um, and there's been little attention. The MEK. The Mujahideen in, in Iran released a report this week, and they've been the source of a lot of the information on the nuclear program, that in Damabandan, uh, uh, which is southeast of Tehran, there is a, another uh, facility, another nuclear facility, that has been, till now, undisclosed. And I, I assume it's deep underground and not necessarily... Underground, inside, uh, inside a mountain. America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, WNYX Montgomery, Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial, around the world on the web, jmtheam.org, Malcolm Holmline on this Erev Shabbos Chazon weekly update here at JM in the AM. So Israel then, just going back for a moment to the uh, Egyptian attempts to thwart terrorism in the northern Sinai, Israel then must be keeping a very keen eye on Egypt's military buildup there. Not that that, that would surprise anybody, but it must it must uh, demand even more attention right now. It demands a lot of attention, and Israel has to give permission, and hopefully the Egyptians will continue to ask for permission to engage in the buildup. You see some of the anti-Israel, anti-Jewish uh, sentiment that's expressed, and of course, you know, people blaming the uprisings there and everywhere else, as they do in Turkey on... on uh, Israel or Jewish lobby or something Jewish that uh, becomes a convenient scapegoat, but the people don't buy it. You don't see them, people carrying signs and things like that indicating that they buy into the lies. Uh, but for, for Israel, absolutely right that this has to be um, a major concern when you see the buildup. They gave permission for 30 tanks, for instance, to go and protect the Suez Canal. Uh, when there was an attempt to fire a Grad missile there, there were other uh, movements on the part of, of forces, and this threatens Israel. And Israel's ability to work across the border into the Sinai is limited because it's, it's Egyptian territory governed by the Egyptian army, and 
they had a you know one response if you remember not long ago where some Egyptian soldiers were hurt or killed even so for Israel the effectiveness of the Egyptian army is very important on the other hand you don't want to allow such a force to build up that could eventually turn against them what about the build up up north and I'm referring now not to uh, its neighbors but to Israel itself as I read again this morning how the IDF has a, uh, a more of a build up this week on the Syrian border is that because there's more likelihood, as opposed to last time when Hezbollah really attacked from Lebanon, that Hezbollah, if they would, God forbid, uh, uh, spray rocket fire on Israel, it would happen from Syria? Well, the rocket fire would happen from more likely from Lebanon, and that's where the mass of the rockets in Hezbollah's hands, and Syria has many long-range missiles capable of heating tel- hitting Tel Aviv. There are reports this week that Assad gave permission to heat up the Golan, uh, border, but not to go so far as to warrant uh, a full-scale retribution by Israel. And as you know, there were several incidents where uh, Israelis uh, jeeps came under fire, uh, rockets fired. Now, many of them were coincidental, was because of fighting between various factions in Syria, and some of it may have been uh, directed at Israel. But Israel's response immediately is to take out. Whatever the offending uh, force was. But would it be fair to say that in 2006, when Israel had rockets rained upon them from Lebanon, they didn't really have to worry about the Syrian border, or that would not be accurate? Yeah, that is accurate, because he's kept the border quiet, but it's a little bit of a myth, because he used uh, Hezbollah in Lebanon to... uh, to attack. Right, so the question is, would that range of potential, you know, rocket fire now expand? It would, would so the the, oh, the only reason he would do it, I mean, his fear of of Israel striking back is that that would desta- further destabilize or wipe out his regime, because it could wipe him out. Right. And, and uh, you know, a really strong Israeli attack and diminishing the capacity of the government forces would uh, could shift the balance, although we see today the divisions within the the rebel groups, the um, seesawing in a lot of the battles, the um, uh, Israel. There was an attack on an anti-ship missile uh, facility that was storing these new anti-ship missiles that came from Russia uh, that were hit in a naval barracks near Latakia. Israel denied its involvement, but the locals all said it was some foreign source, so maybe it came from somewhere else. Um, but there are attacks, there are things going on, because Israel can't allow the shift in the balance with Hezbollah gaining, not only that they're getting battle experience, though it's limited, and they are losing many men, and there are a lot of protests by the families of Hezbollah fighters against Nasrallah, and Nasrallah sent representatives to Iran this week to, to tell the Iranians that they can't sustain this alone anymore, and that they want more Iranian troops to be brought in to, to join in the fighting. Uh, so, and in a, a Hezbollah stronghold near Beirut was hit by a huge, what was described as a car bomb, but it's not clear that, that it, whether it was a car bomb, but it, it blew up an important facility um, uh, of, the, of Hezbollah. So they're not immune from, from this. They could divert and the point is that both Syria or Hezbollah and or Hezbollah could divert attention mm-hmm. from the domestic problems by heating up the borders with Israel. None of them want an all-out war. They know that Israel will strike strong and clearly without restrictions that were imposed last time before 
Hezbollah was part of uh, the new government. And Hezbollah is very stretched. You know, after his visit to Tehran and, and Damascus, he sent a hundred, he sent uh, 20 more battalions into, into uh, Syria. So he's very extended. He's facing internal uh, problems. One of the senior commanders was killed uh, this past week. And uh, they, I think they will be reluctant to take any too adventuristic a state. So for those of us observers who might say things are eerily quiet, would you say, Nahum, they're not as quiet as you think they are? It's always beneath the surface. There's a, there's a lot boiling. The, the good thing is that they're focused on each other and not on, on Israel right now. Uh, we see that the killing continues. That the New York Times doesn't give it so much attention to. Doesn't think it's important what they're doing to Christians. The cops in Egypt, uh, again, in each of these cases, they are focusing on on one another and not on Israel. So for Israel right now, yeah. it is relatively uh, good and stable, and there's no enemy right now that could take on Israel. And there's certainly no. Uh, indication that they could unify. Right. Uh, Two quick things, if we could do them quickly. Um, so, so Mansour took over for Morsi. Is he still president at this point? Of course. Uh, no, he will be president for the next uh, for four and a half months. He wants to have to prepare a revised constitution, and then in six months have parliamentary elections, and then presidential elections. Okay. And Hezbollah's str- excuse me, Muslim Brotherhood strength. Because a week ago we were talking about the death of the Muslim Brotherhood. How would you describe their strength today? No, they're still the best organized, and if there was an election today, they probably would win because they can turn out uh, significant numbers. Uh, and it may even be the Salafis, which is what it even with early. this air of revolution, they would still win the election. Well, they're twenty to twenty-five percent. But remember, you have the the other groups are so divided and so uh, pit against each other, and and not well organized in a national way. Although this time you had perhaps 10 million people, they say, in the streets. And if those people are, are motivated to vote, which they weren't last time, then you could end up with a, a really secular... So Egypt life. needs a really inspiring leader, and they don't have it at the That's moment. Exactly right. And, and you see that he appointed El Baradai, vice president for international affairs. He tried to appoint him as uh, prime minister, but there was a big backlash, fortunately. And... Um, so this is an interim government. This is not a government that, that uh, will, it will be able to uh, last a long time. By the way, what did NSA whistleblower Snowden reveal about Stuxnet this week? Anything dangerous to Israel or just confirm that Israel was involved in the project? Well, asserting that Israel was uh, involved. Um, but we understand that there are still... There's still a lot more to come out. And we've spoken a lot about Venezuela on this program, and uh, you've spoken about its uh, leadership, attitude toward Jews, etc. What do you think when you heard that Snowden may end up there? Not surprising, because they will give the safe haven and refuge like Cuba to anybody who's anti-American, and they also have laws that prevent extradition. Uh, and it's just further evidence that, that nothing has changed, even though this is a new president that's much quieter than Chavez. And uh, Iran, as we know and we described for a long time, had already looked for alternatives. And we saw the, the, the product of that this week when Argentina prevented the prosecutor, Alberto uh, Nisman, to go to Washington where he was invited to Congress to testify about the report he gave about the the activities over the past three decades of Iran in establishing a big terror network in South America. And he's also the one who's investigating the bombings of the uh, Israeli embassy and the Jewish community center. 
and he says that Iran was the main sponsor of the attempt in 2007 to attack the JFK airport and many other things, and Argentina didn't allow him to come to talk about it. Hmm. Uh, have you been updated on the health of the wife of the Secretary of State? From the, what I heard yesterday from people, there was that she that they suspect a, a seizure, but they don't have yet the cause, and she's being transferred now to a rehabilitation place. She's out of the hospital and, and uh, obviously the most serious phase. There was a report this week that a senior PA official, and by the way, this is a report that I think we could talk about every week, but anyway, that you can confirm or deny, that a senior PA official met secretly with the Prime Minister of Israel, Bibi Netanyahu. These negotiations, like I say, are going on on a regular basis behind the scenes or not? There are reports of these activities. There are exchanges between people representing the prime minister and their counterparts, uh, like Molho, whose responsibility it is. Sibi uh, Livni, I think, had uh, discussions with people. She's, she's in charge of the negotiations, but there's no serious... Uh, exchanges and negotiations going on on a second track or third track. Right? Even when the prime minister himself was involved, and I, I guess know that, that the prime minister was. Oh, so this report from this week may not be true. Right. Interesting. Well, they always say that it's uh, high level, and they don't mention it, so everybody then runs to assume because they want to get a, a denial, but then the information about who it really was. Right. And I'm sure the prime minister would be vague if asked in a press conference about it anyway. So but you see the calls now in the PA calling for a third intifada for escalation, and the Israeli military talked about an escalation. There's a group that uh, operates, one of the solo type groups, uh, released information on 5,000 and 6,000 attacks in the first six months, although the army Army statistics released this week also show a drop and saying that uh, because not because there aren't attempts but because the IDF's activities have been so spectacular there in preventing uh, the, the terrorist attacks. Speaking of Israeli politics, the uh, cabinet has now approved a bill to draft yeshiva students. I believe two things. Number one, this has to go to the Knesset and sit through some uh, arguments back and forth before any type of vote. And number two, you would say that this is still far, far from being completed or becoming law, right? This is still far from becoming law, and I'm sure there will be many debates and changes, and even if they pass it, it's not something that will be implemented, and all of a sudden you're going to have mass conscriptions uh, of people. The army can't even absorb the all of the people right now. So I read an article this morning about the army, uh, about the IDF really cutting back four thousand uh, lifetime personnel being laid off, and uh, certain types of uh, of weaponry uh, uh, manufacturing being uh, discontinued. I mean, is, is the Israeli army going through? Is the IDF in general going through uh, a, a, a um, retrenchment? Yeah, an era of cutbacks. Uh, yes, everybody's going through, and that's part of the pressure, and, and one of the reasons why. You know, the focus is only on the cuts in yeshivas and, and some others, but the whole society is being affected. Every minister I met was so preoccupied with dealing with the cuts to their budgets and how they were going to, to accommodate that, and that, of course, leads to unemployment of people and has all sorts of ramifications in society. Oh, no question about that. Um, can you tell me about this uh, deal, whether it's significant or not? A historical agreement has been signed between Israel and the Vatican Ending a 20-year dispute, Israel has granted the Pope an official seat in the room where the Last Supper is believed to have taken place on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Was there anybody opposed to this agreement? Well, yes, there has been a debate because also there were sovereignty uh, issues that were at one time uh, debated, but I think that it's resolved and it's exactly as you described it. 
Malcolm, I wrap up this conversation, Erev Tishabov or Erev Shabbos Chazon, with a very important topic. I just read an article, in fact, that the member of Knesset, Moshe Feiglin, wrote about it. You know, we ha- thank God. I'm not at all uh, diminish- uh, uh, demeaning this. I mean, you, you've been part of the effort to uh, uh, do whatever possible to um, uh, stop the destruction and the uh, vandalism on uh, Harazetim, on the Mount of Olives, right? That has been somewhat of a successful campaign. What can we do? to stop the vandalism and the destruction of artifacts on the Temple Mount, which I would have to argue is an even more important site than any others that we could discuss on this program. Is it simply trying to motivate people to be as enthusiastic and emotional about it as they are about other sites? Well, first of all, on the Harazay team, and I'm glad you raised it, uh, we had a meeting of the committee uh, here, the American uh, part of the committee, which was chaired by Abe Lubinsky and Menachem and others, uh, people who have family there, people who are really devoted and dedicated to it, and people in Israel who are working on it, uh, meeting with ministers, meeting with the government. Uh, I will be doing it when I go to Israel this week again, as I did uh, two weeks ago. Uh, because we still see violence there, we still Correct. see the, in, that the promises have not been implemented. They've done it. You've done it, a great job on this. How do we get the same type of passion to Harabaya to stop so what's going on there? It's one of the things that uh, is really frustrating that you see all the attention given to the discovery of this part of the Sphinx in in uh, in Israel. Right. And, and look how Israel treated it. And they. They treat it with such respect, and the, the, this is a, a, um, a discovery at Chatzar right. in uh, northern Israel, and it is a very significant archaeological find. But here, things so co- close to us and so to the core of our very existence, of, of all that we are, that we hear st- uh, marking Tishabov, and you remember Napoleon was once driving in Paris, and he heard people crying, and he sent his lieutenant in, and he came out, and he said, uh, what was what all the crying and screaming, and he said, because they're mourning the destruction of their temple 1,900 years ago, and he said, any people that mourns for 1,900 years is destined to return. Yep. I mean, we, we pray for the return, we, we, we sit on the floor, we mourn, and 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 now we see the, the very essence of uh, the history there, being destroyed or being desecrated and the government has to order the police they have taken some measures it isn't as widespread as some people describe it but it is serious because the the palestinian administration will now turned over theoretically to the jordanians but it's the waqf there that is in control and and israeli police are often reluctant or afraid to go into some of the areas and what they are doing underground out of sight we know that the Hundreds of tons of stuff that were taken off are still being sifted, uh, in, and will be for years to come. So this is a good time to be reminded that everybody should make their voices heard. We have to demand that the the desecration, and at the same time that they are, of course, continuing, and the Palestinians are engaging in this this uh, how, the denial of any connection and attacking the very essence and. You can't have that kind of incitement, the continuing honoring of terrorists, as we saw this week, and the uh, anti-Israel popular uh, uh, incitement uh, that goes on in the media and elsewhere has to stop. And the, the, the line has to be drawn by Israel on what happens in Harabite. we gotta, we got to think... Two central places. You lost, lose these places. What is, the, what is the, there that we can then stand up and say, this is our heritage, this is why we've mourned for 2,000 years for the rebuilding of the temple? Got to figure out a way to motivate people on this. And uh, 
I'm sure. I mean, look, it's always on your. They seem that people who have family, their relatives, the the committee needs funding. They're looking to build a visitor center. They have all sorts of extensive plans that uh, are uh, being considered, and they need support. And there are are hundreds of thousands of people buried there. Many tens of thousands, I think, of relatives in the United States, as in Israel. And finally, the issue is on the map because of this persistent effort and the constant visits and the pressure of the committee in Israel, the committee here. Uh, and this has to be sustained. No, this the only way because the government is pressured in so many different ways, and then all the change in personnel. So everybody we work out deals with everybody who, who was supposed to address certain issues around the the Harabais. You know, then they change, and the next one doesn't. Uh, you have to start all over again. Well, understood. But if there was a lot of motivation, it would it would be it be percent right. It would be an issue that would remain constant. And well, maybe the new ambassador coming to the United States will help convey the message. Well, you know him. I know him well. So, what do you think? Is uh, is he somebody who will put this on his agenda? Oh, absolutely. I think he he will when and when he comes, and people will make the case to him strongly. He uh, comes from an Orthodox family. He was born in Miami, so he has great communication skills. Be a strong advocate. Um, you see how the media is trying to box him in because of his have past Republican associations, but I think he will overcome that and. Uh, We'll make him an advocate for us. Yes or no, will Iran and Syria get onto the Human Rights Council? Uh, right now, the indications are, as ludicrous as it may sound, that they will again. Wow. On the, wow. Uh, wow. Wow. On the, <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's, it's almost hard to be serious when you talk about it, but it, it just tells you what the Human Rights Council really is about, that the massive killings and, and uh, countries that are violating human rights all over the Middle East uh, can can be elevated in that body, and one of the concerns, of course, that we have, and we have the UN General Assembly coming in this early in September, and it'll be around the Hagim, so it limits our ability to have all the meetings with foreign leaders. But the the uh, Palestinians are likely to move, and that's one of the reasons why Secretary Kerry, I think, is putting on the pressure to come back, because as long as the talks are alive, it doesn't give them uh, the opportunity or it limits their opportunity, but. We think the Palestinians want to try and kill the negotiations, so it will pave the way for them to be able to make, again, a series of unilateral moves at the United Nations to gain recognition. All right. Uh, Malcolm is in Israel next week, folks. We will let you know. Pay careful attention to this show, because as soon as Tisha B'Av ends, we will know whether he'll be able to join us schedule-wise next Friday or not, and we'll update you accordingly. Malcolm, a, a, a wonderful Shabbos. Have an easy fast, and uh, hopefully we'll speak again next week. And a meaningful fast to everyone to think about the real meaning of Tisha B'Av with all of the divisiveness of how each of us can contribute to helping foster unity amongst the Jewish people, within the Jewish people, and our commitments to assure the sanctity and safety of Harabayat and of uh, Harazetim. Thank you so much. Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, Fridays at 7.40 Eastern Time. That's when we present the weekly update. Friday morning, Erev Shabbos Parshas Dvaramich, Erev Shabbos Chazon, candle lighting at 8.09. Many synagogues begin earlier. Make sure you know when things start where you are. Um, Rabbi Yudin is in Israel. He's in the Holy Land. A wonderful opportunity for us to hear from uh, Rabbi Yudin in uh, Israel uh, as we approach Tisha B'Av on this Erev Shabbos Chazon. This time each and every uh, Friday morning, every Erev Shabbos, with great pleasure we present Rabbi Benjamin Yudin. 
spiritual leader of Congregation Shomrei Torah in Fairlawn, New Jersey, to address the entire listening audience concerning the Torah portion of the week. Good morning, Rabbi Yudin. Good morning, Nachum. Good morning, Shabbos, everybody. And for those here, it's good afternoon. And I happen to be in Ramatish Kol in Yerushalayim. And I know you've heard this from me before, but I've got to tell you, I never cease to be impressed by the fact that we have Shabbos, they have Shabbos. Shabbos is universal. However, they have Erev Shabbos. Literally, not only are all the stores closed, you can feel the Erev Shabbos in the streets. You feel it when you see popping up on all corners, the sale of flowers, and you can feel the Shabbat Shalom for those that are Baruch Hashem observant and keeping it, and even those that are not yet understand and appreciate Shabbos is coming. This week we have the privilege of starting the fifth book of the Torah, which I hope to talk about a little bit later, Sefer Devarim, and according to the Chinuch, there are two mitzvahs found in the book of Parshas Devarim, both dealing with the appointment of judges. I'm going to begin, unfortunately, sadly, with the review of the laws of Tisha B'Av, which unfortunately is coming Monday night, and then afterwards try to share a quick concept from Pashas and Sefer Devori. So we begin with this Monday afternoon, after mid the day. The rabbis were so sensitive to Tisha B'Av, and they said that since you're not permitted to study Torah on Tisha B'Av, because, as we know, the Kudu Hashem Yishor and the Samchei Lev, Torah literally gives us this joy, and if it doesn't yet, then that's part of Tisha B'Av, that we are not really connected to our Torah and to the Beis Amigash, unfortunately, which every time, think about it, we finish every Shemona Esrei. Sheyabana Beis Hamidrash, B'meiru B'yaminu, B'sein Chalkeinu B'sora Secha, and give us our share in Torah. What does Torah have to do with the Beis Hamidrash? But the answer is that the Beis Hamidrash afforded and gave us greater understanding, greater wisdom, greater perspective, and this was in all areas, and especially in the area of Torah. So therefore, the rabbis tell us that even one's learning this coming Monday afternoon should be geared towards those things which are permitted on Tisha B'Av, such as the Lord of Tisha B'Av, etc. Tachanun is not said on Tisha B'Av, as well as even already this Monday afternoon at Mincha. And the reason for this is so exciting. We look upon Tisha B'Av that someday, as the Nabi Zechariah promised us, it will be a holiday. And therefore, a holiday, we don't say Tachanun, prior to a holiday. Understand that we have this coming Monday afternoon prior to the fast, the Su'uda Hamat Sekes, literally the final meal before the fast, which is eaten any time after mid the day this coming Monday until sunset when the 
fast begins. And preferably, when you first eat a regular meal, recite Birkas HaMazon. If you can, Dabin Mincha. And then, upon returning from Mincha, you have your Sudam of Sekes. If you don't have that opportunity, after you've benched, after you've completed the first meal, you will wash and have a separate meal before the fast called the Sudam of Sekes. Three or more men should not eat this meal together in order not to require a Zimun. And if three or more did eat together, still the Zimun is omitted and not recited. The meal should be eaten sitting on the ground while wearing regular leather shoes. After the meal, one can still sit on a chair until sunset. Interestingly, at this meal, we're not to have Shnei Tavshirin. And just as the Pesach Seder, the Seder plate is special because it has two cooked foods on it, here one is not to have two cooked foods at this meal. Certainly among Ashkenazim, our practice is to eat a hard-boiled egg at this meal and a piece of bread, and many have the custom of dipping either the egg or the bread in ashes at this meal. Tea or coffee as well can be consumed, and raw vegetables and fruit as well can be eaten at this meal. Uh, not only obviously, and interestingly, from the Talmud, the only time we couldn't have meat and wine is at this meal. Um, we know our practice is that Ashkenazim have not been eating meat from Rosh Chodesh, except for Shabbos, and please God, um, you know, Friday as well, do not eat meat this coming Sunday and Monday. And even beer and whiskey and other alcoholic beverages should not be consumed during the Sudan of Sekes. Uh, during this meal, right, uh, I mentioned some bread dipped in ashes and uh, a cold, hard-boiled egg. And um, if one plans to begin the fast at the conclusion of the meal, then all the laws of Tishabah apply except for the wearing of leather shoes. And if one does not wish to accept the laws of Tishabah immediately after the meal, for example, they want to brush their teeth, etc., it is advisable for the person to explicitly say or at least think in his mind that to make this condition prior to the end of the meal that they're not taking on um, the fast until close to Shkia, close to sunset. Just one reminder, when it comes to this Shabbos, there are no restrictions of wine and meat, even if one wanted to have wine and meat for Shalosh dose, not a problem. The only issue is for Hagdullah, ideally a young child, uh, between let's say approximately six and nine, if you have that, should be able to drink the wine from Havdalah. If not, if there is no young child present, then by all means you can drink the wine of Havdalah. Now, getting to Tisha B'Av. The laws of Tisha B'Av begin at Shkia sunset on this coming 
Monday evening. We continue to face HaKochadim until nightfall, which is 50 minutes after sunset on this coming Tuesday. And like Yom Kippur, you have the five restrictions. One, eating and drinking. Two, washing one's body. Three, marital relations. Four, lotions and cosmetics. And five, leather shoes. Now, there are two nights during the year that the mikvah is closed, and they are the nights of Tisha B'Av and Yom Kippur. A woman who will be going to the mikvah after Yom Kippur can do her preparation, please God, this Monday. Rinsing one's mouth or using mouthwash is not permitted on Tisha B'Av. And a pregnant woman or nursing woman should also fast. If she runs into any difficulty, consult your rabbi, but the answer is no heroics. A sick person does not have to fast. A woman who gave birth during the past 30 days is not obligated to fast. And in terms of washing, here we go. No washing on Tish Abba'av except upon arising in the morning as we wash every day with a cup, that which is known Negovasa, literally Serugin, right, left, right, left, right, left. We do this as well, but we do it only until the knuckles. We then take, shake the water out of your hands, use the wetness of the water in your hands to rub your eyes and to remove whatever impurity has gathered there during the night. You are permitted, however, to wash either yourself or anybody else if they've gotten dirty. If you need to take care of a young child, understandably, if you've gotten some ink on yourself, what is prohibited is some kind of pleasure washing is prohibited. Before a person dabbles, they can wash their hands once again up until the knuckles. And after using the restroom, the bathroom, by all means, you wash until the knuckles. And if a person has to prepare food for children, etc., you can wash the food, the vegetables, etc., accordingly, the usual way. Now, if one has to eat on Tish Abba'ath, they and they're having bread, they would wash their hands in the usual manner. Because again, it's not a rukhisa of tanur. Okay? And when it perspires heavily, can you deodorant on Tish Abba'ath? But all other beauty aids should not be applied. Hair combing is permitted. Leather shoes are not to be worn. And this applies not only for adults, but even for children. And one should not sleep in the usual manner this coming Monday night, but in a less relaxing or comfortable way. If you usually use two pillows, make it one. If it's one, try to do without. And interestingly, until mid the day, until Chatzos on Tish Abba this Tuesday, one should sit low on the ground or on a stool, literally as one sits Shiva. And this is a very important point to try to impress upon us the seriousness of the day and to make us realize what it is that we are missing. We are missing so basic, a fundamental part of 
our existence. In fact, I will interject for a second something very interesting. When it comes to the mourning for, God forbid, a relative, someone loses a parent. So we know that, Allah, on the last day, you get up approximately 20 minutes, a half an hour into the day. You sit for a few minutes, you get up. Why? Mixas hayon kikulo. Part of the day is like the whole day. Why do we keep mourning and mourning? So the halacha, the salvation explains so powerfully is as follows. When it comes to losing a relative, this is, you'll forgive me, the natural order of the world. Hashem made the world this way that people die. Yes, we are going to miss them. The Torah permits us to mourn. But losing a base on Midrash is not the natural way. The natural way is for us to have a base on Midrash. God wants to have his Shekhinah in our midst. He wants to dwell among us. We need to have him among us. And therefore, we are to mourn and we are to go through the very important laws of Tisha B'Av, reminding us what we are missing. And even that which you're permitted to learn, those limited areas of the book of Eov, Job, parts of Yom Yahu, the third chapter of Moikatam, the fifth chapter of the Gemara Megillah, book of Eicha, all this is not to be studied in depth. And, again, once you not learn with children, tell them stories about the Chorban. And housework should not be done on Tish Aba'av. Even the beds should not be made until after Chatzos, after mid the day. Working, if you can get out of working on Tisha, be fine. If it's going to be a Hefse Maruba, a significant loss for you, that you are permitted to do, preferably after once again mid the day. One should not offer Shalom or any other form of greeting on Tisha Av. If somebody does greet you, so do respond in a more solemn way to them. And, you know, wish good night this coming Monday night. And after mid the day, you can, however, things change with different pulse. Because after mid the day, we get up. Because the Pasuk says in Tehillim, Mizmor Asaf. Asaf speaks about the destruction. Mizmor, a song. And the rabbis say, yes, Hashem took out his anger on a building, on Isim and Avonim, and he didn't take out his anger on the Jewish people. And since the Beis was put ablaze on Tisha B'Av in the afternoon. So it's for this reason that counterintuitive, we get up in the afternoon and we have what to literally be comforted that he spared the Jewish people and in exchange, you know, destroyed the Beis HaMikdash. Very important. And it's for that reason that because the Beis HaMikdash continued to burn until midday of the 10th, it is for this reason that we continue and we say, A, no meat and wine this coming um, Tuesday night. No washing of clothes this Tuesday night. No music this Tuesday night. No haircuts, all of the above, until midday on Priestcard this coming Wednesday. The exchanging of gifts is prohibited on Tish Abba'av. And you shouldn't prepare the meal for after the fast until after midday. Just a few more things about the prayers of Tisha B'Av in the shul where the davening on the night of Tisha B'Av, the parochus, the covering before the ark, 
is either removed or pushed to the side before Ma'agriyas for the marriage service Monday night, and it stays that way until after Nimcha on Tuesday, uh, please God, afternoon. And after Shimon Esrei of Maylid, Tiskabel is recited during the Kaddish, after Echo, which is said after Maylid, until Mincha on the uh, on Tuesday afternoon, Tiskabel is omitted. Sasam Filasi. It's as if God has put a, a iron curtain before our prayers. And we read Echa and no bracha is recited before the reading of Echa. And after the reading of Echa, of Echa on Please God, uh, Monday night, we say, Volitzion, and you have Yatok Kadosh, and you have Kaddish. Now, the Kriya Shema and other prayers are recited before going to sleep on the night of Tisha B'Av. On the morning of Tisha B'Av, Talith and Tzillin are not worn during Shacharis. They are put on Semincha. The Talith Katan is put on on the morning and the appropriate bracha is recited. And the bracha Sh'asoli Kansarki is recited in Shacharis. Or Kribanos, Midmur Soda are recited. However, the following prayers are deleted. We don't say Tachanon, don't say Obinamakinim, don't say Alechatayim, don't say the Yerushon after the reading of the Torah, don't say Lamnatseach, do not say Peter Makatores or Enkelenkeno. And finally, the verse Amizos Brisi is omitted from the Uvalid Field. And we read on Tuesday morning, he sold the bunim with the bunim, and we read in the afternoon the principal of Vayichal. And we need to say that after Kriyasatola in the morning, we have a presentation of keynotes. And we should be aware that in many, many communities, and hopefully even in your shul, there's now been a change. But rather than, as years ago, Timus was said, then it would zip through, and in an hour, hour and a half, you were out, and you really didn't understand very much of what you were saying. Now, Baruch Hashem, in many synagogues, Kinos is said slowly with the proper introduction by rabbis and others prior to the Kinos, and this is done until Chatzos, until mid the day. And many synagogues find out that viewers have appropriate videos and shi'umim that are shown throughout the day, helping us to spend the day in a very proper fashion. At Mincha and Shimona Esrei, we add both Nachim, right, in the bracha of Bonei Yerushalayim, as well as Anenu is added in Shema Koleinu. I just want to share with you a very quick thought regarding the book of Devarim that we are starting this Shabbos. And that is as follows. The Gemara in Abu Zarah 25a calls the book of Devarim Sefer HaYashar, literally the book of the upright. The Gemara gives two opinions, whether Sefer HaYashar is the book of Horatius or the book of Devarim. 
And the one who says it refers to the book of Devarim, it's because in the book of Devarim we have the Pasuk Yesisa HaYosher HaTov. My goodness, because that Pasuk appears in Eschanan, next Shabbos, the whole book is called Sefer HaYosher, and the Masha who asks this question says yes, because this is the tone of the book. And just as Rashi says on the spot that Sifa Yosha told his Pshara, compromise, and the Fim Yeshua Sadim, this is what we, the lesson to be learned prior to Pshabad, namely that it is not enough as the Gemara in Babnatsiah 30b says that you should go in accordance with the law, but rather you should go beyond the letter of the law. The only way we're going to go beyond the letter of the law is if we respect and literally love one another. If not, we're not going to go out of our way for each other. And I'm going to suggest one very interesting concept. Take out the Mishnah in Avos. Chapter 5, Mishnah 7. And the Mishnah tells us of the various miracles which God performed for us on a regular basis in the Beis Amigdash. For 410 years in the first Beis Amigdash, 420 years in the second Beis Amigdash, it could be teeming, pouring outside, and the fire on the Mizbeach did not go out. So many other miracles are listed there. Why? To show God's love for the Jewish people. He went out of his way for us in the base of Nigash. It showed his chosenness for us. It shows a special relationship with us. So we, in turn, who say we want the base of Nigash, we have to go after the Drachov. We have to act in kind like him. And as the Rambam learned in his Sefer Mitzvot, the Mitzvah Ches, and as the Rambam writes, at the beginning of Ruchel's Deos, well, after the Drachov, we are to follow God. So as he goes beyond on our behalf, we have to go beyond as well in our interaction and in our personal interrelations with one another. If we'll do ours, please God, we will hopefully create the environment that next year in Yitzhashem, Tisha B'Av, will really be a holiday. Wishing everybody a meaningful fast and a Shabbat Shalom to all from Yerushalayim. Thank you to Rabbi Yudin. Shabbat Shalom is right. Let us continue Rabbi Beryl Wine, his series on uh, the lost communities. We'll try to get in as much as possible. We'll try to get in as much as possible of the lecture on Prague as we wrap up our nine days format for today here at JM in the AM. It's interesting that uh, whereas the Jews from in Germany mainly were in the Rhineland and in uh, Spires and Worms and Mainz, they were the Talmudim of Rabbeinu Gershom, Oragola, and that's where Rashi got his start before moving back to France. The Jews in Prague came directly to Prague from Babylonia and uh, Prague is on the river and uh, it was an important trading post on the river in Roman times already and therefore it was a natural place for a city to be developed and wherever cities were developed in the Middle Ages the Jews attempted to live within cities rather than in small communities there's a pendulum in the Jewish world. 
uh, in the east in Eastern Europe, Jews lived in small towns and not in cities, and they didn't come to the cities until the 19th century. But in uh, Western Europe, Jews always lived in cities simply because of the fact that the cities offered them, so to speak, more protection for the uh, regular uh, ongoing persecution and pogroms that were visited upon Jews by the church and by the noble people who control the governments in the cities. So the Jews not only lived in the cities, they always lived near the cathedral. They always lived near the big church. Again, because that was a place of protection. Because as uh, uh, many times it was the church that saved the Jews by opening its gates and allowing the Jews to find refuge in the church compound or in the monastery compound until uh, the mob's fury abated. And therefore, wherever you go throughout Europe, uh, in Spain you'll see it, and you'll see it in uh, Provence, and you'll see it also in uh, here in uh, Bohemia, uh, the Jewish quarter was always hired by the main churches and the cathedrals. Now that was not necessarily true in Prague, because the great Prague Cathedral was built on one side of the river, and the Jewish community was on the other side of the river. But when the Prague Cathedral, which uh, took about 200 years to build, and uh, anyone who has been to Prague, it's one of the uh, architectural sites that always is shown, the same stonemasons and builders who built that cathedral built the Altnaishul. Because the Jews said, as long as they're here, uh, you know, so... uh, uh, the Alt was built, so to speak, by stonemasons who moonlighted. It was a second job, a third job. We don't know exactly when the Alt was built. It existed in the 1100s already. It's the oldest functioning synagogue, continuously functioning, with the exception of the period of the Nazis, in the uh, probably in the world. It's uh, 900 years. And uh, why it was called the Alt Naishul, there are uh, various interpretations. The one that's probably the most logical is that originally it was the Alt Shul, it was the Old Shul, and then they refurbished it. Uh, it's been refurbished many times over the centuries, as you can imagine. It has just finished the refurbishing job now itself again. So now they have air conditioning and heating, uh, which in the 1100s was scarce. And uh, they, uh, they fixed over the shul. Uh, so when it was renovated, so then it was called the nice shul. But the new shul, the new synagogue. But then they combined it and called it the alt nice shul because there was another shul that was called the alt shul that they never refurbished. And it remained the old shul, so this was the old new shul. It's a theory, it's as good a theory as any. And uh, the uh, Jews in uh, Prague suffered uh, horrible things. And as I mentioned when we discussed Frankfurt on Main last week, uh, Jews are tenacious people. And no matter how many times they got thrown out of Prague, and no matter how many times the uh, non-Jewish population burned down the Jewish quarter, and no matter how high the taxes became and how unbearable life was, 
the Jews always returned to pride. So that we have on record that the Jews were expelled at least six times from pride. But the Jews always came back. In spite of everything, uh, the Jews prospered in Prague. They prospered economically, they prospered socially, and they certainly prospered in Torah. Prague has a record of Rabonim, of great Talmudic Chachomim, great scholars, great rabbinic leaders, almost unmatched by any other community in the world. And it was a continuous uh, line and uh, the people went out of their way to find the position in Prague. So we will find that some of the greatest Jewish leaders, the rabbinic leaders who were rabbis in other communities, always managed somehow to do a, a few years stint in Prague. Now, I don't know whether Prague was the stepping stone to greater positions, or it was the greater position. But uh, the, the roster of people, as I hope I'll discuss with you in a few moments, that were Rabbonim in Prague, really is unmatched in the Jewish world. The Jews were there in the uh, Middle Ages, as I mentioned. In uh, 1338, there were 80 Jewish families in Prague. Charles IV, who became the uh, emperor, the Holy Roman Emperor, he uh, extended rights to the Jews, and he is the one who brought the Jews into the money lending business. As I discussed with you when we uh, talked about Frankfurt am Main, the money lending business was really forced upon Jews because of constraints of the church that they did not want to have Christian money lenders and because of the fact that the noblemen uh, were the only ones that had money and the only way money makes money is by having it circulate and the interest rates in the Middle Ages were usurious, they were enormous I mean, 35, 40... Shame in the AM. My thanks to I Beryl Wine, who has been an amazing uh, um, lecturer for us during these uh, nine days. And uh, Monday we'll continue with uh, more of a, of a Tishabov-themed uh, um, presentation brought by Wine. Uh, we'll find an appropriate series for uh, Monday, Erev Tishabov, And then, of course... Uh, on Tishabov itself, in addition to his lectures, we'll have a kindness service right here at JM in the AM. Amatis will be doing a JM Sunday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern Time on the stream, jmtheam.org. He will concentrate on the stories of Shlomo Kalbach, which we will do on Wednesday morning here at JM in the AM. So Sunday and Wednesday, I'll have an opportunity to hear it. And uh, candlelighting at 8.09 on this Erev Shabbos Chazon, Erev Shabbos Parshas Dvarim. Missed any of our weekly update? Check out the archive section of jmtheam.org. Later on this morning for the uh, full discussion. Time to take a job as it's journeys at Jam in the Air.
say good job is Cause all your work is done Gonna spend a day together with the Holy One Say special blessing on a cup that's filled with wine Man and his creator, it's a very special sign will be burning They'll fill your home with light Singing songs of Shabbos Well into the night So throw away your hammer There's nothing left to do Brothers and sisters in Israel, we are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard and listen to sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, WNYX Montgomery. Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial. Around the world in the web, jmtheam.org. Thanks so much for tuning in. Monday we're back. We'll start at 6 a.m. Matis on Sunday on the stream starting at 7 a.m. Eastern Time with JM Sunday at jmtheam.org. Make sure to be tuned in. Have a uh, wonderful Shabbos Chazon. Monday morning at 6, we'll speak with you and continue our nine days format. And, of course, get ready for Tisha B'Av. Till then, Alchem Siegel reminding you, remember the past, live the present, and trust the future.